we've essentially decided to divide it into two, uh, two sections. One of them dealing with the issue of uh, how we actually get rid of chametz, what chametz we're obligated to get rid for, rid of. Um, and really, the, the issue that I want to talk about is the three main uh, techniques that we use uh, in order to get rid of chametz. And those are bdika and bior, what you can call search and destroy, uh, where we go through our house uh, the night of the 14th and search for chametz, and then the following morning, the morning of Erev Pesach, we destroy the chametz. That's technique number one. Number two is mechira, selling the chametz. And the third is what we call bitul. Uh, which is nullification of chametz. Um, I want to talk about where these three come from, how they develop, especially during the rabbinic period of the Mishnah and Gemara, um, and how they overlap and create the, uh, the, the, the halachic practices that we know uh, and, and, and practice here in Europe. Okay, uh, what I'm going to do is share my screen and hopefully do a little dynamic um, a little dynamic uh, work with the source sheet rather than having this be static source sheet. Uh, maybe we will do a little bit of manipulation of the source sheet as we go forward. Okay, um, here we go. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. Um, Masachet Pesachim is an interesting Masachet because it's, uh, while it all talks about the holiday of Pesach, uh, it's really divided into two. One part is the, or actually uh, two, uh, but, 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 but also sort of three. The first four chapters of the Masachet talk mostly about the obligation to get rid of chametz, which is obviously extremely relevant even in our own time. The next five chapters talk about Korban Pesach in great detail and actually giving a fair amount of historical data, uh, much of which we can actually, uh, much of which can actually verify by outside documentation, uh, including Josephus, who talks about the practice of bringing the Korban Pesach during the late Second Temple period. Um, that's part two. And then the 10th chapter of Tzachem deals with uh, the Seder. So it's really Chapters 1 and 4 and chapter 10, which is still relevant to our own day and age, and chapters 5 through 9, which seem to be five chapters which are plunked in the middle of Masachat Sachim from, uh, from Seder Kodshim, from the section of the Mishnah of the Talmud that deals with sacrifices. Um, so it's an interesting Masachat to learn in that sense, because you have a sense that Pesach was once this unified holiday involving the parts that we know and the parts that we don't know, all of which formed uh, one unified whole. And Korban Pesach was obviously a very central part of that. Um, that's not what we have nowadays, uh, much, to our, uh, much to our dismay. Here, uh, I mean, not only will we uh, pass coronavirus, but also the temple will be built and we will be able to offer the sacrifice, uh, the, the, the Pesach sacrifice again. Um, the Masachat Pesachim starts with, uh, starts in an interesting place, uh, which is uh, the mitzvah of the Bikar Here we go. Sorry, hold on one second. The mission begins as follows. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. 
Um, on the evening of the 14th of Nisan, we searched for chametz by the light of the candle. Again, uh, I'm going to present everything in English uh, and in Hebrew and then in English for at least the sources that, that I have access to translation for. Um, if uh, any terms or concepts are difficult, please uh, raise your hands, real or virtual, and, uh, and let me know. Any place where chametz isn't brought doesn't need searching. Okay, so the Mishnah already sets out the search for chametz as the first ritual of, the first practice of Pesach. Um, anybody who uh, has experienced Pesach knows that this is already way too late to start searching for chametz, um, as, uh, as, as your mother probably told you. Why are you looking for chametz when I've been cleaning the house for two weeks? But this is where the formal ritual part of uh, of Pesach begins, the night of the 14th, we search for chametz, and it already lays out a very important point, which is you only have to search for chametz in places that require searching. The Mishnah continues, If so, what were they referring to when they ruled the two rows of the wine cellars must be searched? To a place which chametz is brought. Okay, so this is an interesting point. The Mishnah teaches us that you only have to search places where chametz is brought. And then it brings this reference to two rows of the wine cellar. Who said anything about two rows of the wine cellar? Where did that come from? So what it seems is that there was an earlier iteration of the halachot of Bikar chametz that involved at least a partial list of places that you have to check, including two rows of the cellar. That part of the Mishnah, in fact, seems to be so ancient so predating the so so far predating the Mishnah, which we can date to roughly the second or third century CE, that the meaning of that phrase Bet Shurot Ben Martef that I'm highlighting here um, is debated by Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, who are uh, late Second Temple uh, schools of halachic uh, of halachic authority. So already there we have. A, a, an analysis of this phrase, meaning that the phrase was so ingrained within uh, the halachic canon that it was debated, its meaning was already unclear by the time of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and they were debating what it means when we say, when we say that you have to check the two rows of the wine cellar. Okay? We often don't appreciate the way that the Mishnah is, a, is itself a layered document. We appreciate the fact that the Talmud is a layered document because the Talmud explicitly includes uh, and regularly includes a very wide range of voices. But the Mishnah often seems to be presented, um, if not as completely flat, at least from coming from a fairly narrow historical period that we call the Tanaitic period. Uh, the early Tanaitic period includes Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel and a few earlier scholars. The later Tanaitic period is Rabbi Akiva and his students and their students. Uh, in the post uh, the, the post Second Temple period, but what we have here is a very very early remnant of a halachic code that talks about this category of chametz, and its meaning is debated by Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Uh, as we often find, Beit Shammai is the more stringent of the two positions. What does it mean? Two rows in the wine cellar. Beit Shammai say two rows over the area of the entire cellar must be searched. Meaning, if you have a if picture, uh, if you can picture a, a kind of phalanx of, of, of wine barrels um, lined up, stacked row, stacked one layer on top of another. Beit Shammai says you have to check the entire two layers of barrels across the width of the entire 
across the area of the entire cellar. And Bainhill says, no, the outer two rows instead of the uppermost. Only the upper two rows, not even the layers, but just those two uppermost, outermost rows of barrels must be searched. What are they debating, says the Mishnah? They're debating the way in which this phrase should be interpreted. And now what the Mishnah does is it takes this case-specific phrase, two rows of the wine cellar, and tries to square it with the more general phrase that we have here, any place where chametz isn't brought doesn't need searching. Okay, so here's another interesting point. Oh, okay, terrific. Great visual depiction of barrels. Thank you. Um, I, I'm sure I, I could find it online, but I, I don't. Uh, I don't want to waste time doing that. Um, I, I remember uh, when I visited uh, with my family a couple of years ago the Barkan Winery, which is not uh, not far from where we live in Israel. And there, it's, it's really a massive room. You have thousands upon thousands of barrels. And my wife actually works uh, or worked in the kibbutz where they do um, where they where they produce wine, but on a much smaller scale. And she was just astonished by the massive scale of this wine cellar, where you had literally, uh, you know, each row or each layer of barrels was hundreds of barrels. What's going on in the mission here? We have this old phrase, two rows in the wine cellar, that's very case specific. It's referring to a very specific place in your house that you have to check. And that's the earlier phrase. And now a later phrase that's incorporated into the Mishnah is this phrase, um, and what the Mishnah is doing is squaring the general statement, the later general statement, with the earlier case-specific statements. Here's an interesting phenomenon that also happens in the Mishnah to a greater extent than we appreciate. You have this development of halakha from case-specific rules into more general principles, and sometimes there's tension between them. Sometimes the more general principle uh, seems to be at odds with the case, the, the case-specific ruling, and then you have to figure out what the what what the the um, what, 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 how the two uh, how the two really mean the same thing. What do, why did they rule that you only have to check two rows of the wine cellar? Because that's the only place where chametz would be brought. In other words, if you were going during your meal down to the wine cellar to bring up a barrel of wine, what part of the wine cellar would you be likely to access with your possible piece of bread in hand? I've actually done this, going back to my kitchen to get something, and whoops, I dropped some crumbs in the drawer, which is what we're going to be cleaning out in the next few weeks. Um, this, um, these are the areas, this is the area of the wine cellar where you could conceivably have dropped a piece of bread and that you would need to check. Okay, so just to give you a sense, of, this mission gives us a sense of how ancient and how deeply ingrained the practice of the Dikab Chametz was in the way that they dealt with Chametz and cleaned their houses of Chametz in the uh, rabbinic or actually even pre-rabbinic period. Okay, when we think about rabbinic law, it doesn't simply date from the Tanaitic period, the period of the main scholars of the Mishnah. It's really, its roots are really deep in uh, the second temple period, and that's evident in this Mishnah. Okay. Um, anything else I wanted to say about this? Um, no. Okay. So that's the, uh, oh, yes. Okay. Well, this general rule, uh, we don't know where it comes from. It's simply uh, a ruling that the Mishnah presents that was codified over time. Uh, it's actually a very important rule, practically speaking. Uh, when you think about the places that you check, we have this habit of, 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 of making Pesach cleaning essentially a kind of spring cleaning. Uh, and that's not what it's meant to be. 
Uh, I remember uh, my mother attending a shear of Rabbi Silber's many years ago, and what he says, uh, what he what he said to his audience is simply, "Dust is not chametz." <laughs> Uh, and, and this word is an important rule to remember. On the other hand, uh, there are places that you sometimes don't think of checking. Uh, for me, ground zero of uh, Pesach cleaning is under the seats of our car, uh, including in every tiny little crevice where somebody has no doubt dropped a pretzel or a cheese cracker over the course of the year. Those are the places that you may check comments. There's a level of reasonability that is built into the institution of Bikat Hametz, which is the point we'll come back to a little later on. How do we do Bikat Hametz? So this is supplied not in the Mishnah itself, but by the Tosefta, which is then quoted in the Talmud Okay, We already add, had the phenomenon of Or Haner in the Mishnah, and now the Tosefta elaborates. Ein Tosefta is a, is a compilation that's parallel to the Mishnah, dates from roughly the same period of time. Um, and then it elaborates, okay? because, um, because candlelight is, um, is greater, actually there's a girsa, there, there's a snafu in the girsa here, it's not clear whether the proper text of the Tosefta is that it is better in some way, or miruga because candlelight is greater. The translation that I have here takes the second of these two. Um, this is also an interesting point, because when do we do Bikat uh, Hametz? We do it on the night of the 14th. Well, wait a second. Why would you be checking by sunlight then? So this is actually a point that the Talmud Babu develops uh, that I don't want to go into now. Question is, is there an alternate time that you could do Bikat Hametz? This is something that comes up when you have large areas, kind of an institutional uh, uh, um, institutional structure that you need to check. If you have a dormitory and you need to check uh, each room of the dormitory, if you have a hotel, could you do Bikat Hametz at an earlier time? And if so, do you do it during the day or do you need, can you do it during the day or do you need to do it at night? From the fact that Tosefta says, don't do it perhaps you could say that if you're not doing it on the night of the 14th, if, you're ob if there's no way to check everything on the night of the 14th, you're obligated to check earlier, perhaps you could do it even during the day, except the problem is not the time that you do it, the problem is the means that you do it by. And we require you to do it by or haner by candlelight, either because candlelight is yafa, which could be interpreted in a number of ways, or mirba or is greater. If you say it's yafa, and this is actually the variant text that we find in the Bavli, not miruba, but yafa, what you end up saying is the candlelight is a more effective, and actually the, the way that, that it's phrased is a more precise way for you to check. Candlelight provides a more effective and, and point, uh, kind of, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, focused light that is appropriate for checking. Uh, this is a question that comes up nowadays. Should you check by candlelight or flashlight? And the simple answer is you should check by flashlight uh, because uh, candlelight, uh, you, you, you run the risk of a fire. Um, that's the simplest uh, simplest reason. By, uh, and if you're going to go with the Katanar Yafa, um, then you should um, then you should certainly use a flashlight because flashlight is more 
uh, effective and more focused. Nonetheless, many people still have the custom of using candlelight, and in the second part of the Tosefta, we see at least one reason why. Even though there's no proof for the notion that you have to be the there is a hint to this in the following two verses from Tanakh. In that term, I will search Jerusalem by candlelight, or maybe a better translation here is lamplight. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. And that which it says, the life breath of man is the lamp of the Lord revealing his innermost parts. Okay, there is a focus here on candlelight, or maybe lamplight is more appropriate, because if we translate the term candle in the time of, uh, or in the, in, in the context of biblical or Mishnah Hebrew, what we're thinking about is not our wax candle, but an oil lamp of the kind that you see in, uh, in, uh, in museums, right, or that you, you see on archaeological digs. Um, why are these two verses quoted? The simplest reason the verses are quoted is because they talk about searching by candlelight, suggesting that candlelight is, or at least the first verse talks about searching by candlelight, uh, suggesting that candlelight is the standard or most effective way to search. But already in the first verse, we get a sense that the Gitar Hametz, having become ritualized, has become more than simply a practical means to revealing where Hametz is in your house. And already we get a sense here that Hametz becomes more than simply a pro technically prohibited substance and a symbol for something uh, more uh, spiritual. And therefore, the Gitar Hametz too, the ritual of Gitar Hametz, becomes something that is not merely practical, but also spiritual. What is God searching for in Jerusalem uh, by candlelight at the end of days? He's searching for something about who is righteous and who is wicked and who deserves to be saved and who doesn't deserve to be saved. And then in Mishvei Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam literally that means the life breath of man is the lamp of the Lord revealing the innermost parts. But cleverly, what the Tosefta has done is reverse the, 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 the meaning of this first section of the verse. Here we have Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam, which could be translated as the life of man is the lamp of the Lord, right? Because Hebrew can put the subject or object first. It does not have a rigid subject verb object structure. And of course, there's no verb here because it's just is, which is not expressed in Hebrew. Um, but the verse, the way that the, the Tosefta is interpreting the verse is actually reversed. The lamp of the Lord is the life breath of man. In other words, God's lamp, God's candle is us. And therefore, there's a sense that when we search by candlelight, we are searching with ourselves, with something, it, 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 with, with some deep part of ourselves, our innermost parts. Um, and this is a theme that's picked up on, uh, most prominently, of course, by the Hasidic masters, that chametz represents the, 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 the evil inclination or, or some part of ourselves that we want to get rid of. And Pesach uh, is the time when we purify ourselves of, of, that, um, of, of that evil inclination or the, 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 the pervasive parts of our souls 
Um, and that's what the Bikat Chameti is. And so it acquires, in, in, in the way that it becomes ritualized already by the period of the Mishnah, it acquires a much deeper religious significance, um, not only as a practical way of getting rid of chametz, but also this kind of dimension of, of a spiritual quest of searching out the innermost parts of ourselves as we search out the chametz in the house. Right? Hence, even though nowadays, practically speaking, a flashlight is much more effective, uh, one understands why people are still uh, inclined to search for the candle because the ritual takes on this this kind of spiritual search element, um, we want to do it in a way that is most uh, traditional uh, or, or people would say authentic. Okay. Um, the, just skipping down here, we're going to come back to the other sources. The way that the Kachamites becomes ritualized, it's expressed in a number of ways in the Talmud, um, the simplest of which um, and again, it's kind of, uh, we, we, we don't usually think very much about the fact that we make a bracha when we do bikat chametz. But this is actually a point that the Talmud has to make. Amr Abihuda, habodek tzarich shivarech. When you're doing bikat chametz, you have to make a bracha. Well, you might think that's obvious, right? You do brachot every time you do a mitzvah. But in fact, we don't do make brachot every time we do a mitzvah. When's the other mitzvah, another mitzvah we don't make a bracha on, for example? We don't make a bracha the very next morning when we burn the chametz. Well, wait a second. Isn't burning what the Torah says you have to do? The Torah says you have to get rid of all of your chametz. Why isn't that the focus of the bracha? So here again, we see the way that the bikat chametz, uh, already by the period of the Mishnah and the early Amorite period, achieves this kind of ritual significance. Okay? The fact that this is what you make a bracha on means that this becomes the focus of our efforts, or one very central component of our efforts to get rid of chametz from our house. Okay. Um, what we're gonna do now is gradually scale back from, or gradually kind of work our way back from that very Bikat-focused uh, perspective on how we get rid of our chametz. Because as we're going to see, as we move through the rabbinic period and into the post-rabbinic period, we'll discover other techniques of getting rid of chametz that minimize the significance of the dikad chametz as a practical way of getting rid of chametz. Um, and even though the ritual remains, it remains uh, at least conceptually in somewhat diminished form. Okay. Um, let's start. Uh, I'm going to help to get all these sources, but I see that. Uh, We'll, we'll see how much time permits. Um, first, an interesting question. What, are, what kind of chametz are we responsible for getting rid of? You think, okay, well, any chametz that's found in my, uh, in my domain. Well, how do you define domain? We have two psukim, in fact, that talk about the requirement to get rid of chametz, or rather the prohibition of having chametz in our possession. One of them is uh, in Exodus chapter 12, seven days, leaven shall not be found in your houses. Okay, the term seor, uh, probably the, the best way to translate this is uh, leaven is one way, but seor probably refers to uh, what we call sourdough starter, right? In the old days, they didn't use prepackaged yeast if you wanted to make bread. You had sourdough starter, what we call sourdough starter, and that's what you use to leaven your yeast. That saor is therefore a more intense um, 
manifestation of the the the, the prohibition of having any leaven, uh, any anything uh, leavened in your property, because it is not only itself leavened, but it's the source of the leavening power uh, in any bread that you're going to bake. And then in Shemot Yud Gimel, Exodus 13, we have a similar but slightly different verse. No leaven bread shall be found with you, and no leaven shall be found in your territory. Here we have both the term chametz and the term seor. So you might say, okay, the Torah repeats this. Uh, it's an interesting question and something for uh, the biblical scholars are always invested in. Why does the Torah repeat, uh, repeat the supreme? Um, the perspective that we're going to take, obviously, is a halachic perspective. And when halacha engages with the biblical text, it engages it in the process that we call midrash halacha. So here we go in terms of a little primer on midrash halacha. When you do midrash halacha, you are very, very focused on specific terminology. What elements of these terms, of these verses, are the same? Um, well, the term shivat yamin, even though I haven't put it here, is the same in both verses. Shutting my window to get out the background noise. Um, but there are some other discrepancies. This verse, as we said, mentions only seor, whereas this verse mentions this verse only mentions seor. Whereas this verse mentions not only seor but also chametz. Well, are they two things or one thing? This one says, lo yimatse, whereas this one says, shall not be found, whereas this one says, lo yirae'eh. Shall not be, ah, the translation here is actually not so precise. Uh, shall not, literally, what is lo yirae'eh, shall not be seen with you. Verse the verse twelve nineteen says It says in your um, in your houses, whereas this one says in all your territory. So these slight discrepancies may not be may not seem to be all that significant, but as we will see, the midrash makes a great deal or leaves a great deal of significant significance into these. Um, into these uh, differences. Okay, here we go. Tanur Rabbanan says the Talmud. Shivata means soor lo Seven days, leavening age may not be found in your houses. Matamudamar, what's this teaching us? It already says, No leavening age may be seen by you, nor chametz may be seen by you in all your borders. Okay, so the Tom's actually asking in an interesting way. Why do we have verse 12, 19? It says we already have verse 17, verse 13, 7, even though it's citing them out of order, right? Why do we need both verses? It's essentially the question. What do each, what does each verse come to teach? Here we go. Because it says no leavening agent may be seen by you which implies that you may not see your leavening agent, but you may see leavening agents of non-Jews and of hectage. You could mistakenly think that one, uh, okay. Um, okay, 
if you only had, let's say here, sorry, the transition is not as precise as I'd like. Look, it says here, lo yerae lecha seor. We didn't really notice the lecha. The lecha is in fact actually, it's actually not usually translated, though here it's preserved in the translation. With you, okay, well, that's not really much of a significant phrase. Lecha, in fact, is often read by the rabbis to have a great deal of significance. What does lecha suggest often in Midrashic readings? Lecha meaning not only with you, but owned by you. You may not see your leavening agent. Implying, what could you see? You may see the leavening agents of non-Jews and of Hekdesh. Okay, so already the your limits the scope of the chametz for which you're responsible. What chametz are you responsible for? You're responsible for your chametz, the chametz that is owned by you. So here's an interesting point that we read out of the verse in this context. The, the, the parameters of owning chametz is specifically defined not as chametz existing in your domain, but your ownership of chametz. In other words, the prohibition of having chametz on Pesach is legalized. It's made subject to that legal concept that we call ownership. Well, how far do we take that? What do you mean? You could mistakenly think that when they hide leavening agents, or accept collateral of chametz from a non-Jew, I'm going to take this out. Therefore, the verse teaches us by saying it will be not will not be found in your property. In other words, if I only had verse thirteen seven, what might I say? Oh, lo yirael chametz. I can't see it. What am I going to do if I can't see it? I'll just close my eyes and wear blindfold. Pesach, not so practical. What will I do? Hide it away. I don't see it. Also, it says, if you don't own it, maybe you're not responsible for it. Well, we did say that a minute ago, but that is limited or, or mitigated by the implication in this verse. What does this verse say? Lo say, it shall not be found. If we say it shall not be found, well, that means I can't hide it because if I hide it, sure, I can't see it, but I might find it. And notice in this verse, there's no lecha. So what do we do? We split the difference. Uh, okay, we're going to see how we split the difference in a minute. Um, and now if we go back to this verse, we see it says, so you might think that it's only in your house that you can't have chametz, but somewhere else on your property you could like in storage pits or other places where you might store chametz, tamul bamar bechol gevulecha, in all of your borders. So effectively what happens is these two psukim give us different sets of parameters and we kind of mix and match and say, okay, this verse is teaching me one thing, this verse is teaching me another thing. Effectively, yimatsei becomes the dominant element here. It teaches me that it's not simply seeing chametz, but even finding it. In other words, this expands the scope of things, that, of the prohibition of having chametz. And this one expands the scope in terms of the chol gvulecha. 
Now, obviously, if we were going to dig a little deeper into this, you could say, well, why not just combine? Why, why have two verses that I need to mix and match from in the first place? Why not just combine them in one verse? Not our issue for right now. What's interesting is just to see the way that the Midrash thinks. If I have two psukim, they balance each other out. And that's what we're going to see now, because effectively what happens is there's a balance between the yimatse element here and the lecha element in this verse. How do we see that? Amar Mar. Now the Talmud cycles back uh, after it cited this bright, after it cited this Midrashic passage, which is from the Tanaidi period. Now the Talmud comes along and tries to resolve an implicit contradiction. You could mistakenly think that one could hide Hanitzer except collateral from non-Jew. Therefore, the verse teaches us by saying it will not be found. You could think I'm just going to hide it, or you know what? It's not mine. I'm going to take a collateral from a non-Jew. He owes me money. I'm going to take a collateral of his Hanitzer, and I'm going to leave it sitting in my property. Well, wait a second. But in the first clause, it said you may not see Hanitzer, but you may see Hanitzer of non-Jews and of Hekdesh. In other words, what's the implicit contradiction? Lo Yimatzei tells me I can't take a collateral of chametz, but Lecha tells me that if I don't own it, it's not my problem. So how do we say that you can't take a collateral, but also you're not responsible for it if it's not yours? Lo Kasha says the Talmud, no problem. We, uh, we assign different values to these cases. This refers to one who accepted responsibility for it, and this refers to one who didn't accept responsibility for it. In other words, if I take a non-Jew's chametz and I place it in my domain, when do I have to get rid of it? It's only when I've accepted responsibility for it. In other words, if something happens to the chametz, I'm liable. But if I don't have liability for it, if I just say to my non-Jewish neighbor, yeah, you can put that in the corner, it, I'm not taking any responsibility for it, that I'm not responsible. And we have an interesting practical case that came up in the time of the Talmud. We had to honor the Rav Lebni Mechosa, Beiru Chamira de Bnei Chela Mibatehu, Kevin de Ilu Migna de Ilu Mitzvah Beard Shutaihu Kai Ubaitu Lishtume Dilchon Dati. Rav said to the people of Mechosa, "Remove the non-Jewish soldiers' chametz from your homes because if it will be stolen from you, it will be lost. It's in your domain. It's considered your responsibility, and therefore you need to pay them. Therefore, it's and you need to pay them. Therefore, it's like yours is forbidden." So also here, we see a deepening of this kind of uh, formalization of this prohibition to own chametz, where it's subject not only to ownership, but an even finer grain distinction between liability and not liability. And where the Talmud proceeds here, and the, the medieval authorities go even further, is they formalize this to the point where they put it in certain halacha categories. This kind of watchman, this kind of shomer would be would have to get rid of chametz. This kind of shomer would not have to get rid of chametz. Chametz then becomes not a general prohibition of having chametz in your domain, but a very formalized notion of ownership of owning chametz. Okay, and this is going to be significant as we go forward. Okay, that's as far as the parameters of the prohibition. But now we have another uh, interesting phenomenon, uh, which we started talking about before, which is bitul. Bitul meaning verbal nullification of chametz. And this comes up not in the first parak, interestingly, but all the way at the end of the fourth chapter of Sachi. <laughs> 
He who is on his way to slaughter his Pesach sacrifice or to circumcise his son or designing the betrothal feast of the house of his father-in-law, he remembers that he has chametz at home. Okay, somebody just not doing uh, proper preparation for Pesach. He has a very busy air. Pesach is on his way to Jerusalem to sacrifice carbon Pesach or some other uh, ritual matter that he has to tend to, and suddenly he forgot that he has chametz sitting at home. If he's able to go back and remove it and then return to his religious duty, he must go back and remove it. If not, he annuls it in his heart. Well, here's an interesting phenomenon. What does that mean, he annuls it in his heart? Then the Talmud goes on to discuss other possible things that this person might be doing on Erev Pesach when he's allowed to do, use this technique of, excuse me, of bitul, of nullifying the chametz in his heart and when he's not allowed to. This is a very, very strange kind of technique. There he is on his way to do a mitzvah. He remembers that he has chametz and he says, up, I'm canceling that chametz. Sometimes I like to, when, I, when I'm teaching uh, halakha, in a very conceptual area of halakha, I, um, I use uh, Harry Potter analogies because sometimes we get this sense that halakha um, when we when we when we do halachic um, we do our halachic duties like waving our our, our magic wands right um, you fulfill your obligation it's kind of like casting a spell on on uh, on your lulav or on whatever it is poof you've fulfilled your obligation there is a sense sometimes in which the formal parameters of our mitzvot um, have such formal qualities that they become almost uh, almost like waving a magic wand and casting a spell. Well, that's most true of, of all the contexts in which I use that. This is the case in which that is most relevant. What does that mean? He cancels it in his heart. Uh, he waves his magic halachic wand and poof, his chametz is gone. Very bizarre, and the Mishnah does not elaborate. What does this mean? Well, we don't actually see very much elaboration, but what we do find is that Beetle shows up in the first chapter of Masechet Sachim. Uh, again, in the context of Bidika. Part of the ritual of Bidika, as we said, is making a bracha, is making a blessing. And now we find another element that comes up in the way that the ritual of Bidika has developed over time. Rabbi Huda said, in the name of Rav, when he searches for Hamid, also needs to verbally nullify it at that time. In other words, Already in the Amoraic period, part of the ritual of Bikah is the practice of Bitul. And this is the root, this is, this is the source of what we do after we're done searching house for Hametz. We say the, the, the formula of Bitul, which is Kol Chamira Vechamia Deika Birshuti, and so on and so forth. Any Hametz that I did not find, and then the morning of the war, we say any Hametz that I did not burn, should be Batel, should be nullify. Now, the Talmud still doesn't explain what this means, but it's very clear that the way the Talmud is incorporating it into the ritual of Bidika means that it's kind of a backup mechanism. So now the Talmud says, my time, why is this? What's the reason? Maybe because there are some crumbs somewhere that you didn't find. They're not important. Hello, Chashivet. Crumbs are again not something that you are obligated to get rid of. They are null and void on their own. That's the sense of what the Talmud said. 
If so, what's the reason? Amarava, Rava, in the fourth generation of Amoraim comes along and says, it's a decree out of concern that maybe he'll find a nice loaf of chametz, and it will be important to him. In other words, what happens, and uh, sadly, uh, unfortunately, this happens every so often, you think you've done a total search of your house for chametz, and then, as happens, you open the freezer. I forgot to check the freezer. What do you find in there? Um, some... Um, who knows, something that you were storing for a special occasion, some chametz you were storing for a special occasion, and you forgot about. And this, unlike the crumbs, is not null and void because this is something that is significant. This is something that would be important to you. Why does it matter that it's important to you? Again, this phrase just pops up in the Talmud, date ibafe, without any explanation. And this is going to be the focus of what we're going to do uh, of our analysis of Bitul as a mechanism. Well, says the Talmud. So when he finds him, let him nullify it then. Why does he have to do the big tool at the time when he's doing the bika? Why not just nullify it as soon as he finds it? Says the Talmud. Maybe he'll find it after Chametz has been forbidden, and it's no longer in his possession, he'll be unable to nullify it. Meaning, after the prohibition of Chametz has come into effect, when did the prohibition of Chametz come into effect? At noon on Erev Pesach, at that point, you no longer have jurisdiction over the Chametz and you can no longer nullify it. Because Rabbi Elazar said, there are two things that aren't in a person's possession. His name from Enam Bishuto Shaladam, the Asa'ana Katu Ki'ilohain Bishutu Ve'ilohain, Bor Bishut Harabim Bechametz Mishesha O'ilbawa. There are two things that aren't in a person's possession, but the Torah made them as if they're in his possession. These are them, a pit in the public domain, and Chametz afternoon on the 14th of Okay, This is also an interesting statement that we're going to talk about as we go forward. What do we see here? We see that Betul 2 is subject to this notion of ownership. But you can only nullify something insofar it is considered to be yours in your domain or in your possession. As soon as six hours on Erev Pesach comes, the sixth hour and noon and Erev Pesach arrives, the chametz is no longer your possession, but the Torah puts it in your possession. Okay, this is something that we're going to explore as we go forward. But already at this point, we see that you have to do bitul when you already, when you still have jurisdiction over that. Otherwise, it is too late. Um, okay. What is bitul? What's going on here? Okay, so what we're going to do now is go to um, some of the medieval commentaries. Um, who talk about Bitul in the context of another passage in the Talmud, where the Talmud has just an oblique reference to Bitul and the way that Bitul overlaps with Bidika. Says the Talmud in Psachim 5b, since Bidikar Chamech is only, it says, Bidikar Chamech is, this is the continuation of the statement, but we're not going to get into the context here. Since Bidikar Chamech is only of rabbinic requirement, in why is Bidika only rabbinically required? Because uh, from the Torah, only Bitul is required. 
Okay? So this is talking about the context of whether we believe somebody about whether the house was checked or whether we don't believe them. The context is not important. What's the Talmud do? And the Talmud is actually telling us something very surprising. Up until now, the impression that we have gotten from the sources, this is the central focus, the main way that you get rid of your Hamid is by searching and destroying. And all of a sudden, we have, well, gradually what happens is the ritual of Bikab becomes elaborated on and uh, one could say accessorized with uh, the bracha and with Bitul. And now the Talmud comes along and says, oh, well, if you're doing Bitul, the Bitul exempts you from anything that you would be required to do otherwise, at least on a biblical level. When the Torah says, get rid of all your chametz, how could you fulfill that? By nullifying it. And in fact, this is what many people do. If you're locking up your house for Pesach, because you're traveling, you're not going to be home, you don't need to clean your house for Pesach, because all you need to do is be tool. You just need to nullify everything there. Um, and therefore, in this year where uh, we are uh, all going to be home for Pesach, uh, all travel opportunities have basically been uh, nullified. Uh, nowadays, in this year, nullification is not an option for many people who use this technique year in year out. And now people actually have to search and clean their homes. They wouldn't be required to do otherwise. But on the biblical level, they would be able to fulfill it with Bitul. And therefore, Bidika now is diminished to only a rabbinic requirement. Well, what does this mean? How do we do Bitul and somehow wave our magic wand, our magic wands, and nullify it? What justifies this technique? Says Rashi, the Bitul Alma. Dichtiv tashbitu, because the Torah merely uses the term tashbitu, which means to, um, what could be translated as to nullify, from the term shavat, which means to, uh, to, to, to um, negate. Velok tiv tivaru, and it does not say burn. Says Rashi, Rashi is doing a kind of uh, midrash of his own and saying, look, the choice of word here is not tiv'aru, which would mean to burn, to physically destroy it, but rather tashbitu, which could be interpreted more broadly. The semantic range of the term tashbitu is broader than if I said tiv'aru. The hushbita, hashbata, should be hashbata, not hushbita. The hashbata delayed, a nullification in your heart, is considered to fulfill the requirement of hashbata. And this is followed as well by Maimonides, by the Rambam, when he says as follows, What is the nullification or negation the Torah requires? that you think in your heart, uh, or psychologically, mentally, and you think that your chametz is like dust. You imagine that you have no chametz at your property. That it is all like dust. You have no need of it. Again, there's something about a psychological relationship to your chametz that is being emphasized here. And this is actually what's implied by the Talmud. Remember, when the Talmud talks about the institution of the Dikah, what does it say? If it were just crumbs, crumbs are totally insignificant. Halo You don't have any need for your crumbs. Your crumbs are already effectively like dust, as, we would, as the Rambam would put it. 
And therefore, with the only kind of honeys that you would need to nullify ahead of time when you still have the ability to do so, that's when when you have a, a uh, desire for or see significance in this chametz, when it will be important to him. This kind of chametz, uh, the, the kind of chametz I think of is I uh, make a double batch of pie crust. Pie crust is not something that I make so easily, and therefore I stash one in the freezer thinking for a special occasion, right? That pie crust is really important to me. I work to make that pie crust, and when I find it, I'm going to have that twinge of saying, wait, do I really want to get rid of this? No. That's the kind of chametz that we would be concerned about and that Bitul is affected for. The fact that ahead of Pesach, I have said, whatever chametz I have not found and destroyed, whatever chametz I have not physically nullified from my property, that's the chametz that I am using this halachic magic wand to get rid of. Okay? We still haven't explained why that works, what, but, or the Rambam and Rashi and the Rambam said, what, the reason that works is semantic. The way that the Torah describes the requirements to get rid of chametz is with a word that has broader semantic range than simply physically destroying. It means that I have psychologically negated this chametz. That's enough. Tosfot is not convinced, and Tosfot goes through a series of uh, arguments against this approach and develops a different approach. Omer v. Rabbi Yitzchak when the early uh, ballet toast for the scholars of France and Germany in the 12th and 13th centuries, he says as follows, Why on a biblical level is Beetel sufficient? What happens when you do Beetel? When you do Beetel, you are making it Hefker, Hefker meaning ownerless. Anytime, we do this a lot before Pesach as well, I go through, going through my closets and see that there's all sorts of stuff there that I don't need. What do I do? I put it out on the sidewalk with a sign that says, anybody can take it. That is called Hefker. Well, if I'm making the property Hefker, it means I no longer own it. Aha, says Tesfut. How is that effective for getting rid of Hamid? We've already said that it's not my responsibility if I don't own it. The parameters of the prohibition of having chametz are subject to the legal parameters of ownership. And therefore, if I've made hefker, it's no longer mine and no longer my responsibility. In other words, Tosvot says this is not about a specific phenomenon or a specific technique that's relevant only to chametz, which is what Rashi and the Rambam are suggesting, that it's based on this term, tashbitu. Rather, says Tosvot, this is based on the conceptual notion that I'm not responsible for chametz that I don't own. And effectively, it goes back to a different verse in the Torah, the verse that we set up here, lo yera lecha, that it's about your ownership of the chametz and not simply having chametz in your domain. Tosot's interpretation actually has, uh, we may call residue in the way that we do bitul chametz. Because when we do bitul, we don't simply say, as Rashi suggests, or as the Rambam suggests, the chamit should be ke'afar, that it should be like dust. We also say that it should be hefker, have a hefker, as Totsvot says here. This is a halachic phenomenon which we're familiar with from other contexts. We try to cover all of our halachic bases and exempt ourselves according to all of the different halachic authorities. But these are actually not the same thing. When we say it's 
Hafgar and Ke'afar were really appealing to two different understandings of what Bitul accomplishes. And therefore, this, there's really something of a, an inconsistency in the way that we do Bitul. We cover all our bases fine. Either it's Hafgar or it's Afar, but either way, I'm, I'm, I'm set. The best approach to understanding what's going on with Bitul is the Ramban. And the Ramban develops a very lengthy, uh, a very lengthy essay, uh, a full analysis of what he thinks is going on in Bitul. And we're just going to pick out a few passages. Um, he quotes Rashi, doesn't like Rashi, because he doesn't think that Hashbata implies a mental nullification. And in fact, that's a kind of difficult understanding of the verse. Uh, he also doesn't like Tosfos, he says. Vikasha, this is difficult. Understanding uh, Bitul as Hefgar is difficult. Why do they use the term bitul, says the Ramban? Says the Ramban, Chazal, our sages, did not forget the word hefker. And throughout the Mishnah, they use the term hefker very freely. Why would you come up with a different term to describe what we're doing as bitul? What Chazal forgot that there was this concept of hefker? Why did Chazal choose Lishon Bitul? Says the Ramban, the language of Bitul implies this technique, this mechanism of Bitul is not simply declaring the Chamez to be ownerless. And the Ramban brings out a number of different problems, the ways in which the, the technique or the parameters of Bitul are different than Hefkir. In other words, Bitul does not simply mean excluding the Chamez from my ownership. Seem to be doing something different. The Ramban develops the tech, the, his explanation based on what we talked about uh, in the Talmudic passage above. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I just want to go back to this passage. The passage which said, there are two things that aren't in the person's possession, but the Torah has made them their life in his possession. And these are then a pit in the public domain in Hametz afternoon on the 14th of Nisan. Let's start with the pit in the public domain. I see we're almost out of time, but I'm just going to take a, about five minutes to get through this point. Uh, and then uh, maybe we'll pick up with this, uh, the, the last of these points, which is Mechirat Hametz uh, tomorrow uh, when, we, uh, when we pick up with this. Um, but I would like just to finish off this point, if you can bear with me. What does this mean, a pit in the public domain? I go and I dig a pit in the middle of the street, and I walk away. Am I responsible for any damage that pit does? The Torah says, yes. Why? In what sense is the pit mine? Well, I created it, right? But I could say, well, no, it's a puddle. It's not my responsibility to fill it. It's true that I created it, but now that nothing about that pit can be owned by me. Says the Torah, nonetheless, we make that yours. Yours in what sense? Yours in the sense that you are now responsible for that. Yours in terms of liability. In other words, a pit in the public domain is an example of something that I do not own in a technical sense that we usually talk about ownership. I can't sell that pit to somebody, right? I can't, um, I can't then use that pit for, uh, for, for some purpose because the street is not mine. And yet I'm responsible for it because I created it. And that's the Torah's uh, declaration or edict that it makes me responsible for that pit, even though that's not the way that we usually think about ownership. It's 
mine with air quotes. The same thing is true for chametz after noon on the 14th of Nisan. Now, wait a minute. We said that the only chametz you're responsible for is chametz that you own. So why does the Torah have to make it yours? Isn't it yours already? Why is the chametz no longer in my possession for afternoon and the 14th of Nisan? The Ramban says, very simple, because chametz, as soon as it becomes prohibited, becomes prohibited not only in terms of keeping it, but also in terms of benefiting from it. There are very few substances in halacha that I'm not allowed to benefit from. One of them, for example, is basar bechavav. If I cook meat and milk, I'm not allowed to sell it. I'm not allowed to feed it to my dog. I'm not allowed to gain any benefit from that thing. The same is true for chametz. I'm not allowed to gain any benefit from chametz, which is actually an important point when it comes to people who uh, have a large amount of chametz. They have a store or a chain of stores where they sell chametz on Pesach. Uh, when you get around all the parameters of owning chametz, they're also not allowed to benefit from the sale of that chametz on Pesach, even so far as getting monetary benefit from it. Well, if I can't get benefit from something, effectively, I can't own it in any meaningful way. Therefore, as soon as the Torah comes and says, now it is Pesach, and Pesach, as far as chametz is concerned, starts not the night of the 15th, when we sit down to our Seder, but already the afternoon of the 14th, when, when the temple was, uh, was, was still in existence, we'd be bringing our Karban Pesach. That's when the prohibition of chametz comes into being. As soon as that happens, the chametz that was mine a minute ago is now no longer mine because it's prohibited in any sense to me. I can't even get benefit from it, therefore it's as if it's no longer mine. Aha, but there's a twist. It's no longer mine in a financial sense or in a legal sense, because something that I can't get any benefit from is no longer, effectively, no longer mine in a legal sense. Nonetheless, just like the pit in the public domain is mine in terms of a liability sense, so too the chametz afternoon on the 14th of Nisan is mine in one sense and one sense only, and that is liability. Okay, so effectively, do I really own any chametz over Pesach? Is there any chametz that is really mine, right? Any chametz that is really l'cha? I can't own the chametz on Pesach, so what could I possibly be responsible for? Says Rabbi Eliezer, ah, you're right, you can't legally own chametz, but the Torah made it yours anyway, yours in what sense? Liability for the prohibition. You with me here? There's a discrepancy between the formal parameters of ownership and the parameters of my liability for the chametz. And this, says the Ramban, is the key to understanding Bitul. When we get to Bitul, what do we say? Bitul isn't even verbal. I can just think it. Why? Why can I just think it? Um, Skipping down a You only violate the prohibition on chametz that you want to keep around. If you have lost hope of keeping this chametz, but if you have lost all the hope of ever regaining ownership of this chametz, you've said, ah, it's lost. What is it lost to? 
it's lost in the sense that anything of my property that is being taken away from me would be lost. Imagine that I uh, put my piece of bread down and a tornado comes and whips it away. I lose hope of ever recovering that chametz, right? In other words, at that moment, I say to myself, that chametz is forever lost to me. Says the Ramban, effectively what happens on noon of the 14th of Nisan, there's a halachic tornado that sweeps through my property and it takes all chametz away from me because now I'm no longer allowed to benefit from it. It's effectively no longer mine. Says the Ramban, right, mashal l'mamon aveda. This is just like if property would be lost to me. Kevan if the tornado swept through my property and swept away all my chametz and then gently laid it down in somebody else's property, they'd be allowed to take possession from it because as soon as I despair of ever recovering from it, it's no longer mine and somebody else can take possession of it, legally speaking. It's not that I've called it hefgare. I haven't willingly given up my possession. I've unwillingly given it up because I see the tornado or the river or whatever other natural force is taken away from me. Af chametz bismano, says Ramban, mamon avud hum ba'alav, the chametz during the period when it's prohibited is as if it is lost to its owners, v'yatsa merushuto ba'yeush. Okay, and that is as if it is forever lost to him. V'hainu, and therefore he says, shamayim sag gliska yefei piyad datei lavei, and that's why it's significant that when he finds this beautiful gliska, this beautiful piece of chametz sitting in his freezer that he forgot to check for a Pesach, it's significant that his mind is still on it. What's the concern if you don't do the tool that you will find the piece of chametz and you will say, oh, I wanted that all along. What is Bitul effectively then? Bitul is essentially acknowledging or acquiescing to the notion of this halachic tornado, this halachic river that's sweeping through my property and removing all chametz from my possession. Just like as if it's a physical force, I have no choice but to say, yep, it's gone. So too, if it's a halachic force, I have, but sorry, sorry, there's a difference. If it's a physical force, I have no choice but to say, yep, that chametz is gone, it's no longer mine. I am despairing of ever recovering up from it. That's the concept of mitya'esh, of yeush, of despair. So too, or sorry, it's different, again, when it's a halachic force. Now I have to imagine and accept the fact that there is a, an imaginary halachic tornado coming through my property and sweeping all my chametz away. Bitul, says the Ramban, is the process of acquiescing to and acknowledging the force of that halachic tornado. If I say to myself, an Erev Pesach, I see that all my chametz is going to become null and void, it's no longer going to become mine because the Torah is taking it out of my reshut, I want that to happen. That's what's going on when I do Bitul. Is that hefker? In the sense that it's no longer mine, yes. But it's not that I am willingly taking it out of my property the way that I do if I put things on the sidewalk and put up a sign saying free friends I can take. Who is taking it out of my property? The Torah. The process of Bitul then is acquiescing to the Torah's will and saying, yes, this is no longer mine. And then even if I find it afterwards, I said, I already acquiesced to the Torah's will and that beautiful pie crust that I made oh so carefully that's sitting in my freezer, I already have psychologically dissociated from. That, says Ramban, is the concept of the tool.
In other words, what gives us the power to wave our halakhic magic wands and say the Hamit is no longer ours, we are simply harnessing the power of the Torah. The Torah makes all Hamets from six hours on Erev, from Yunan Erev Pesach on, uh, Asur Bahana'ah, makes it prohibited to gain any benefit from it. And we are simply harnessing the power of that halakhic reality and saying, yes, we acquiesce to that halakhic reality, we accept that, and we are psychologically dissociating from all the Hamets. And now, at that point, what Rabbi Eliezer said back here, which is that the Torah puts it back in your possession, makes you liable for it, that is no longer true. When does the Torah put two things back in your, to put the Hametz afternoon and the 14th Nisan back in your possession? Only if you haven't done the Bitul. Even if you're still holding on to the Hametz that you might find and saying, oh, maybe I'll save that for after Pesach. If you have acquiesced to the Torah's reality, that's when you're no longer responsible. That's when the Torah no longer gives you the liability. And that's what we accomplish by Bitul. Okay, so we've laid out the way that Bitul, Bidika and Bitul overlap within rabbinic literature. Bidika being the primary ritual means of getting rid of Hametz, and Bidika, sorry, Bidika being the primary ritual way, the search and destroy, uh, which is undercut to some extent or, or undermined to some extent by the phenomenon of Bitul, which is a, a, a kind of uh, a kind of override mechanism where any Hametz that I didn't find, I can simply psychologically nullify. We understand well why it's a backup because you have to actually exert effort into getting rid of your Hametz. You don't want to have your Hametz lying around such that you might find, uh, I know I talked about prior recipe. for some people it's a bottle of whiskey that's sitting in their, in their liquor cabinet. Uh, the bottle of whiskey that you might find and say, oh, it's a good thing I didn't actually get rid of that, it's a good thing I didn't actually pour that down the drain. B tool, uh, so Bika is needed to, to kind of remove the, the, the more likely temptation from our, uh, from our domain. But B tool, uh, the bottom line is effective. And if I did B tool and then I find that bottle of whiskey or that pie crust, um, I'm no longer technically liable on a biblical level. Okay, uh, we're leaving the sources that have to do with Mechirat Hamates, the selling Hamates uh, for now. Hopefully, we'll get to that tomorrow. Uh, very briefly, because Mechira is actually an important piece of what we do. The main focus of tomorrow's class, however, is going to be the phenomenon of koshering cavings, koshering vessels, which is another way to remove chametz, but in a very different sense. Removing chametz not in a uh, the physical sense of getting rid of actual chametz, and not even in a halakhic requirement to kosher or kaven. Practically speaking, we have to kosher our kitchens that we can cook in them at Pesach and not have them be infected by the chametz uh, that's in our vessels. So what we're going to talk about tomorrow is this notion that the chametz is uh, somehow infecting the vessels and therefore infecting our kevin, infecting our kitchen tools, and would somehow make its way into our food would we use them to cook or prepare our food on Pesach. That's what we're going to talk about in tomorrow's class. Hi, everybody. Uh, let's get right to it and pick up where we left off yesterday. Um, even though yesterday uh, we were talking about how to get rid of chametz from our homes and the various techniques that we use, the Vikan Biur, uh, which is search and destroy, um, Bitul, which is um, mentally or psychologically or halachically, magically nullifying the chametz, um, and um, um, hold on. And Mechira, um, but we didn't get to Mechira, we didn't get to selling Hametz, which is what we're going to talk about now. 
even though Mechira is actually more a part of yesterday's class, it's actually, I think, a good lead into today's class. Um, so let's start right off here with the Tosefta. We said the Mishnah focuses very much on Bidika and Bi'ur, really Bidika as the main ritual, and then after you do the Bidika, you burn the Chamei Tzitzvayim. It mentions Bitul later on at the end of the fourth parak of Mishnah Pesachim. The notion that you can sell chametz as a way of getting rid of your chametz appears only obliquely in the Mishnah and much more prominently in the Tosefta. In the Mishnah, it says as follows. Actually, in the Gemara, Bechamai say a person may not sell his chametz to a non-Jew unless he knows that it will be consumed before Pesach. And Bechamai say any hour that is permitted to eat chametz is permitted to sell to a non-Jew. So this is an interesting question that related to something we talked about yesterday, which is, are you responsible for chametz that you don't own? Bechamai seems to think that you are. Bechamai seems to disagree with the midrash that we read yesterday and say that even if you don't own the chametz, if it's found by you, meaning it's somehow in your domain or your possession, you are liable for that chametz and you are respons you're responsible for that chametz. You're liable uh, for a, a biblical prohibition if you don't get rid of it before Pesach. And therefore, says Beit Shammai, the only way that you're allowed to get rid of it for Pesach is if you know the non-Jew will consume it before Pesach. Otherwise, it still exists. They don't say no. If it's not yours, if it's not legally yours, you're not responsible for it. Okay. The, actually, the interesting thing about the is it's not even clear that you're actually getting it out of your, if you, you may be responsible for it, even if you get it out of your domain. In other words, Beit doesn't seem to think of selling Hamid as a way out of the problem of having Hamid before Pesach. He doesn't think that, that, that simply legally excluding it from your possession is enough of a solution. You have to actually destroy it. And therefore, the only way that you would destroy it is by having your non-Jewish friend eat it. Uh, they don't say no, it's enough to legally get it out of your possession. This is the only place in the Talmud that in the Talmud Babli that we see that this appears, uh, this notion of selling chametz as a way out of the problem. Um, and so far, it seems to simply be an extension of that which we learned uh, earlier on in the uh, in the Masechta. We talked about the Midrash of which chametz are liable for. Beit Hillel is consistent with that Midrash. That you're not responsible for chametz that's not lecha, that's not yours. The Tosefta takes it a step further and gives us an interesting scenario. Yisrael v'machru shayu ba'im basfina v'chametz biyad Yisrael horiz v'machru v'machru v'not nozim v'ratana v'chozer v'lokech mimenu v'achar ha-pesach u'bilvad sh'yitain lo sh'yitno lo b'matana g'mura. If a Jew and a Gentile were traveling together on a ship and a Jew had chametz in his possession, he may sell it to a Gentile or give it to him as a gift and then purchase it from him after Pesach, as long as he gives it over to him completely. Now, this is a kind of sale that's different than what the Talmud was talking about. This kind of sale is a temporary sale, so to speak, meaning when you sell your chametz to the non-Jew, not only are you not sure that he's going to eat for Pesach, you have no expectation that he's going to eat it before or on Pesach. You sell it to the non-Jew with the full assumption that you will buy it back from him after Pesach. So this is a completely legal so solution to the problem. 
again, still consistent with the with the midrash that we learned yesterday, namely that you're not responsible for it and therefore not liable for it. Any chametz that doesn't belong to you, but this leads to a very simple, maybe even elegant solution to the problem of chametz, which is sell it to somebody else, and then it's no longer yours. The problem, of course, is how real a sale is this if you're planning on buying a vacuum, which is why the Tzosefta includes this caveat at the end, as long as he gives it to him over, or largely he gives it over to him completely, as long as the sale or the gift is a full gift. Well, that raises the question, what does that mean? What does it mean that it's a full gift? How would it not be a full gift? What would that imply? That you give it to him less than Honestly, less than fully, it's really not clear what the Tosef is getting at, although similar notions appear elsewhere in Halakha. So these words come in here. You have a condition against the gift. Okay, interesting. It's very specific. Um, you have a condition attached, meaning you say, I will sell it to you as long as you sell it back to me. Right. That would be, I think, a compelling way to understand the Tosef. That's clear that it, it's clear that would not work. The Tosefta adds a curious piece at the end here, which I haven't translated because I'm actually not sure exactly how to translate it, and, and the Mepharshim actually disagree about what exactly it means. Um, right, a condition would be the same thing as saying that it's a time-limited sale. In other words, you can't sell something to him for a certain period of time. We'll, we'll come back to all of those in, in, in just a minute. Rashai Yisrael lomar shiyomar lemechri anshatalokech b'maneh kach b'matayim the Jew is allowed to say to the non-Jew, you know, don't just buy a hundred man, a hundred zoos worth of chametz from me. Buy two hundred, because maybe I'll want to buy some back from you after Pesach. It's not exactly clear, and as I said, the commentaries disagree that exactly why selling him more chametz correlates with you wanting to buy it back after Pesach. This is this is a bit of a strange point that he's making. But it's clear Tosefta is saying that you're allowed to set up the sale in such a way that makes it obvious to all involved that it's going to be reversed come, uh, come the day after Pesach. In other words, there doesn't even need to be a pretense that this sale is going to be permanent, as long as it has the binding force of permanent sale. Okay? Point number one that I want to make is as follows. Um, when we think about a sale of this kind, we think about it uh, as, as something that is very legal. And the term that we often use when we talk about this is it's a legal fiction. What do we mean by a legal fiction? Mm -hmm. Somebody want to come jump in here? Please do if you want to say something. A legal fiction is something that uh, I, I think a term that we often use pejoratively to say that it's not real. In fact, it would undermine what it says here, that you give it to them completely. No, when you use a legal fiction, it's really not real at all. You're just selling it to him as a way of ticking the box or checking the box and saying, oh, I got rid of my chametz, and as soon as Pesach is over, you untick the box, and now you have that. That's a fiction, right? I want to distinguish now between two terms that we often use synonymously, except that one, legal fiction, has a kind of negative cast to it, and the other has a kind of neutral cast. I want to use the term legal formalism, because what we're doing here is certainly a legal formalism, and it may also be a legal fiction. 
When I say legal formalism, what do I mean? A legal formalist then, and students, people who've been in my class, I think in any context have heard me talk about this sometimes at nauseum. A legal formalism means that it's something that exists only if you put blinders on and you think very legally about what's going on here, meaning you block out all other ways of thinking about this sale and you say, I am transferring ownership of this to my non-Jewish uh, colleague. And now it is, if you think about it legally, only within the discourse of law, that's what we call a legal formalism. Formally speaking, in terms of the language or the meaning system of law, is it mine? No, it's not mine anymore, it is. And then there's certain real ramifications. What are some of the ramifications of that? Well. If the Nanju wanted, he could go ahead and partake of some of the Hametz over Pesach. Uh, if the Nanju wanted, he could sell it on to somebody else. And, and most importantly, if the Nanju wanted, he could actually keep it. Right? So a formalism is real in the sense that it works within the structure of law. When does a formalism become a fiction? A formalism becomes a fiction, I want to suggest, when you have another system of meaning it doesn't quite correlate with the legal system of meaning. And this is what we mean when we talk about something like Mechirel Hamid as a legal fiction. Um, in fact, I think that, that uh, when, when I talk about legal fictions, and I've, I've talked about this in classes, some of you have been in, um, I've talked about it specifically with regard to this because it's the one that we're most familiar with. Um, when I sell my whiskey, um, right, because I don't feel like uh, dispensing, uh, pouring my whiskey down the drain uh, before Pesach, I sell it. It sits in my liquor cabinet the same as it did before I sold it. And it does sit there all of Pesach, and then I buy it back after Pesach. If I put on blinders, right, I block out all other possible ways of thinking about what I just did, and I say, legally speaking, is that mine? No, it's not mine. There, there's a non-juice liquor in my cabinet, right? And, and, and people who are deeply committed to halakha as a way of thinking about the world, right? Think Rav Soloveitchik, Allah halakhic man, will genuinely believe and feel with every fiber of their being that the liquor in that cabinet is not the same as the liquor that was there before. It's no longer mine. They will open the cabinet and say, oh, what strange bottle of liquor that's been sitting there. Um, the problem is that we also have other ways of thinking about our property that don't necessarily have, that aren't necessarily strictly legal. If I see liquor in my cabinet, I think, well, it's still in my possession. I may not own it, but it's still in my domain. And generally, what do we associate with things that are in our domain if we're not thinking terribly legally, if we're thinking kind of balabatishly, right? If we're thinking kind of commonsensically about the, the stuff in our world, stuff that's in my domain is usually mine, right? And, and unless somebody tells me otherwise, I assume that something that's in my domain is mine. Legal fictions are cases where there's a dissonance between law and some other way of thinking about something. Generally, what do we do when we sell something? We sell it, that's the legal side, and we give it to the other person who we sold it to. That's the practical, common sense, balabatish side. In other words, usually ownership and possession go together. When ownership and possession don't go together, when they diverge, when I give up ownership of something but keep possession of it in some way, well, now suddenly I have a problem. And that's what we call a fiction. There's a kind of dissonance I have 
which is what we refer to when we talk about things as fictitious in a legal sense. I saw the two, two comments here. Let me just check these. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not actually defining domain as any particular restrict here. Uh, in fact, I don't actually want to define domain too explicitly because when when we talk about domain, we actually have to give up the domain that our chametz that, that we can't have chametz in our domain even if it belongs to a non-Jew, as long as we are responsible for it. So really, when I say it's in my liquor cabinet, um, the liquor cabinet is technically no longer my domain at all, because if it were, I would be responsible for the stuff that was there. There's a sense in which we are also selling the space that our stuff is in to the non-Jew. Okay? But, but again, I don't want to get in terms, in terms of the too technical side of it. Um, I, I guess one way of defining Rashid, I guess, right, so I guess uh, Zoe's comment is, is well taken that it, it is kind of a Rashid Hayahi in a sense. Uh, but again, I don't want to get into it uh, in too technical sense. Um, that's what I mean by illegal fiction. And therefore, Mechirech Hamid becomes for, for a, a sort of paradigm of dissonance between the way halakha functions as a system of meaning, as a formal system of meaning that defines its own set of terms and parameters, and other systems of meaning that don't always correlate perfectly with that. Okay, I want to kind of put that on the back burner for uh, just for a few minutes and, and, and deal, I continue to deal with this issue of Nechirat and how far we take it. Because it's just have to base this out as a formalism and maybe even a fiction that is acceptable in the world of halakha. Meaning it's an acceptable way to get rid of your hamate. It becomes a third technique that you can use apart from physically destroying or mentally nullifying your hamate. You can sell it, but it's a legal avenue out of uh, owning hamates. But then when the commentaries or later halakhic authorities talk about this, they are divided as to how, uh, how, how widespread uh, this technique uh, can be used or how broadly it can be used. This is already starting in the Goim. I haven't translated this, but we'll read it together in Hebrew. Amram Goim says, V'Yisrael shemachachem tzol legoi o shenachnolab matanagimura im mashach goi oto ve'ein sham ha'arama the Eno Ragil La Sotin Bishar Shanim Ela Morehu. Okay, the Rav Amram Gaon says a Jew who sold his Hamids to a non Jew or gave it to him as a complete gift, first of all, the non Jew has to mashach, he has to make the kinyan, he has to do some act that shows mastery of this. In other words, it has to be real according to all the technical specifications of how you require something in Laha. And now he adds the Ain Sham Ha'arama. There is no, there is no subterfuge. There is no trickery. Ha'arama, in a in, in a general sense, right? Who's the 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 Torah says the Hanachash Haya Arul Mikol Chayat Asadeh. The the snake, or the serpent, was trickier or or more cunning than all of the. Uh, than all the other creatures in the world. There's a sense of cunning here, and Ha'arama obviously also has a negative cast. There's no Ha'arama. You're not simply doing this as a way of getting out of the prohibition of having chametz. Well, aren't you? Isn't this always Ha'arama? 
What does he mean when he says the Ein Shan Ha'arama? Well, he elaborates. You don't usually do this. In other words, for Rav Amram Ga'on, the, the, the frequency with, you, with which you do this says something about your intention and how cunning and deceitful you are being in manipulating the halachic system in this way. If it is simply a me'orah, if it's a one-time instance, that's fine, because that shows that you really genuinely do it, and you're not using this as a way of circumventing a halachic prohibition. Then he says, Then you can go buy back from him after Pesach. My time, uh, why? Why is this? Since the non-Jew has purchased it, and he has acquired it, he's made a kinyan on it, now it is in his pursuit. And we rule. And if the Chamesh was owned by a non Jew after Pesach, it is permitted because you didn't violate the prohibition of keeping Chamesh in your Rishut over Pesach. So, so Rav Amr, uh, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Um, he, so he's very much, um, Rav Amr is very much, I guess, pushing against what we define, what you defined as like halachic. Formalism in the general sense, because like, what are you talking about? It's a Kenyan. Who cares if you do it every year? Oh, we're doing it every year. It's not like. Um, yeah. So Rav Amram Gaon is very much pushing against the notion that you can put on blinders and say, I'm only thinking about this legally speaking. Rav Amram Gaon is not halachic man. He says, if you're doing this every year, come on, did you really mean it? Or another way to put it is Rav Amram Gaon could be a committed formalist, but when you're a formalist, you have to play by the rules. If you're not playing by the rules, if you're not really intending to give over this object to the non-Jew, right? one of the things required for a kinyan is an intention. If I don't mean to sell something to you, it doesn't matter how many formal steps we go through, it's still not yours. So also he, how do we know that you mean it? Yeah. And also he says, because can you go, oh, um, and there's really, it has to be an actual Mashiach, because like, I don't know what he was pushing up against, but if he's pushing against kind of what we do today, okay, you sign a form, whatever, they make a Kenyan. Yeah, they actually have to be there. They yeah, have to really well, the, take the possession. The controversial issue this year, the controversial issue this year is, uh, is everybody's doing, um, everybody's doing it online, right? I, I, in years past, I remember there being uh, a notion that some people were very particular about having a physical Kenyan. Now, even our physical Kenyanim don't seem very real. What did you do when you did your physical Kenyan? You went to your local halachic authority and you created a pen or a handkerchief or what? So that made it real, really? That's also kind of uh, formalism verging on fiction, right? Oh, because the rabbi gave me the pen and now I give it back to him. Now it's more real than if I just clicked the box on my on my computer screen, right? It's true. There there is a sense in making it as real as possible, and we do other things to make this real. Um, but what he's inveighing against is specifically the issue of intention and what the frequency of your using this technique says about your intention. And that, I think, is what he's getting at when he talks about Ha'arama. If, if you're doing it as a way around it, you didn't really need to sell it at all, and therefore, for all of the pens that you gave to the rabbi and for all of the mishikha that he did, this didn't really work. Um, Rav Amram Gaon doesn't say it explicitly. Um, I mean, the, he doesn't say the flip side explicitly, but the Ritva, later halachic authority from the Middle Ages, uh, Rav Yamtov Ben Ashpili uh, of Catalonia does. He says as follows. Um, he says, mm-hmm. 
who asur lo ulechol Yisrael achar Pesach. If he is merely using it as a legal loophole and does so every year, we find him and render his chametz after render his chametz after Pesach, uh, meaning we render it chametz she'avar alav ha-Pesach, and it's prohibited. So he says, technically speaking, this may have worked, but we impose a fine and we say it didn't really work. For it's considered as if it were Hanit's given over to a non Jew for safekeeping, which is forbidden after Pesach. And he too merely intended to give her for safekeeping, but he used the legal loophole. If you gave your Hamid over to the non Jew and said, you know what, I'm going to keep ownership of this, just watch it for me, that's Hamid Shavarab of Pesach. And therefore, the Ritva says, if it's clear that you're using this with loophole, doesn't work. When did Mechirat Hamid actually become part of the halachic system? Uh, or when should, or should I, the way I should put it is, when did it become normative practices? There were hints already in Ramam Gaon and in the Ritva. This is already something that was being used at various points in history. But I think the, the, the evidence points toward it becoming a major, uh, a significant way of getting rid of your chametz, a significant technique that became a standard part of our arsenal of how to get rid of chametz only in the early modern period. And that has to do with certain socioeconomic changes, certain changes that happened as the Jewish community, the major centers of, of, of Jewish life shifted to Eastern Europe and Jews shifted professions they became innkeepers. And when you own a tavern, what's one of the major things that you sell? Liquor. So, says the Bayin Chadash, Rabbi Yol Circus, from Poland in the 16th century, or 17th century, in this country, says Reveal Circus, in where most of our business is in liquor, and one can't remove all of one's chametz from one's house in order to sell it to Gentile, one may simply sell the Gentile all the chametz in a given room. You have so much liquor, these massive pegs of liquor, and you can't even take it out of your domain. You can simply sell it to a non-Jew and then buy it back after chametz, and that became a standard way to get rid of your chametz, simply because economically they had no choice. Um, if you uh, if you look at um, Jacob Katz's uh, Jacob Katz's book Goishal Shabbat the Shabbos Goy, he talks about these economic changes uh, in a different way regarding the issue of Shabbat because taverns had to be open on Shabbat as well. So what did you do? You hired a non-Jew to work in your tavern on Shabbat. Well, you have to do that. What if you don't trust a non-Jew? And now you have to not only hire them to work there on Shabbat, you also have to watch them to make sure they're not stealing from you. So you have to actually stand in the tavern and watch as they're manning the cash register or manning the, the, the bar. Um, these are the kinds of questions that came up. So chametz is another issue that comes up and became uh, a, an issue specifically for Pesach and therefore Mechirev chametz enters the standard way we have to get rid of chametz over Pesach. Nowadays, the common custom is for everybody to do Mechirev chametz often not as a way of getting rid of actual chametz that you have, but as a kind of safeguard, it, it becomes kind of uh, akin to, or a, a second backup to Betul, just like we use Betul as, as a safeguard in case you missed anything because of, um, that, you, that, you, that you missed during Bika and Biur, so too Mechira ends up being kind of a safeguard 
uh, for things, food substances that you didn't get rid of because they're not actual chanets, but might contain some chanets in them. Um, that's why, or the way that most people, that many people treat Nechirat chanets, unless of course you have some sort of um, uh, some sort of business where you have large amounts of chametz and then we use it as a standard way of getting rid of actual chametz. But many posts can advise not to sell chametz gamor, actual chametz, but only things that might be or might contain some chametz in them. Um, okay, uh, let's shift over to the second topic that I wanted to talk about. And I see we're not going to get through everything, but I want to get through a couple of central uh, central themes in the issue of koshering. Because koshering, as I said yesterday, is a different way of preparing our homes for Pesach. It's a different way of getting rid of chametz, but not actual chametz, but rather chametz that resides in, uh, to, to, to uh, use a, a certain kind of metaphor, uh, resides in the kalim, the vessels that we use in our kitchens on Pesach. What's the problem with having a kli that was used for chametz? The assumption is that we make in standard laws of kashrut that kelim, the vessels that we use for chametz, absorb the chametz, and then if you use them again on Pesach, they will exude that chametz back into the food that you are preparing, and therefore where you end up with is a mixture of chametz and non-chametz, which is of course a sore to eat, prohibited to eat on Pesach. So fundamentally, when we talk about kashering, we are still talking about getting rid of chametz, but getting rid of chametz that is not actual chametz, but chametz that is merely ta'am, that is merely chametz taste, or maybe you could put it as chametz particles. It sounds strange to need to get rid of particles. This is the way we talk about it. Um, and therefore, the starting point of any discussion of the issue of kashering is what is the status of a mixture of chametz and non-chametz on Pesach, right? If on Pesach, I would take out my everyday pot and, uh, and cook vegetable soup in it. But uh, yesterday on Erev Pesach, I cooked pasta. Um, the vegetable soup now has is now infected by, or uh, there has been exuded into my vegetable soup, the taste of chametz. What's the status of that food? So here we have a machloket. I'm only giving you two of the four voices in this machloket, in the Gemara and Sachin 29b. I'm a rab chametz bismano, ben bimino, ben bishlo bimino asur. Shelo bismano, bimino asur, shelo bimino mutar. Rav said, chametz in its time, i.e. on Pesach, whether mixed with its own kind or with a different kind, is forbidden. Meaning, it doesn't matter whether the chametz taste has been exuded into something that is similar in taste to it or different in taste from it. In other words, whether I can distinguish the chametz taste, the taste of pasta, in my food or not, right? For example, if I would make a difference, if I'm cooking in this chametz stick pot, um, uh, my Pesach pasta or vegetable soup. Pesach pasta would maybe, presumably be the same kind, assuming Pesach pasta tastes enough like regular pasta to make it no, to make it the same kind, then it would be forbidden, otherwise it would be permitted. Uh, uh, sorry, regardless, it doesn't matter whether the taste is, whether it's been no or no, it's forbidden. In other words, Rav is extremely uh, stringent on the issue of mixtures of chametz and non-chametz. It doesn't matter what other food substance the taste of chametz has gotten mixed into, it's totally forbidden. This is different, actually, than the way we pass in about other kinds of food mixtures. If I cooked 
if I made an omelet in my non-Jewish friend's pan, and they know that earlier today they cooked bacon in that pan, um, would my omelet be a sewer? That might depend on whether I can taste the bacon in my omelet or not. But here, Rob says, it doesn't matter whether I can distinguish the taste of the chametz in my food or not, it's totally prohibited. Rabbi Yochanan said, chametz on Pesach, whether mixed with its own kind or a different kind, it's forbidden only when it imparts its taste. According to Rabbi Yochanan, there has to be enough chametz taste exuded from the pot to actually be able to taste it in my, uh, in my vegetable soup or in my, in my pastry pasta. If I can't taste it, says Rabbi Yochanan, it's as if it's not there. Okay, so that's one machloket. We actually paskin like Rabbi Yochanan. Sorry, we paskin here like Rav. Unusual because we almost also almost always paskin like Rabbi Yochanan against Rav. In this case, however, we paskin like Rav that it doesn't matter how little chametz is mixed in my food; it's always prohibited. Uh, questions come up every year, uh, half jokingly. Um, we get water in Israel from the Kinneret. Well, what if somebody earlier this year dropped a piece of bread into the Kinneret? According to Rav, doesn't matter how much bread is in the Kinneret, right? Why is that make it usher? Also, there are ways of answering that question. But, but it's a legitimate question according to the way that Rav thinks about, uh, thinks about this. Um, why is this important? Because it comes up when we think about how to kosher a kid in for Pesach. I'm a Rav. Kedirot the Pesach Yishaveru. Rav said pots on Passover, pots must be broken on Passover. Rav says every year you've got to destroy all of your pots and get new ones. Why? Well, notice the Rav says not only are your stick pots a problem on Pesach, Rav says they're a problem even after Pesach. Rav says there's no way of getting around this problem because even the chametz that's absorbed in your pots after Pesach, it's chametz shavarlev a Pesach, and Rav thinks that's a problem even after Pesach. Yeah, we don't actually paskin like Rav that chametz shavar lava pesach. We paskin that chametz shavar lava pesach that's mixed into a mixture is totally permitted, like Rabbi, like Rabbi Ochanan here. But Rav, being consistent with his own position, would destroy his entire kitchen every year and buy a new set. Okay? Okay. Um, and now we get to a practical case. Ha'hu tenur detachu v'atichaya asra rava bar ahilai v'mechal rifta a certain oven was greased with fat. It was greased with animal fat. Thereupon, Ravabari life forbade for all time the bread baked therein to be eaten even with salt, lest he come to eat it with kutach. This is a halacha that we have about bread, not about Pesach bread, but bread in general. You're not allowed to bake dairy or fleshic bread. Why not? If you have bread that that's dairy or fleshic, you might come to eat it with the other kinds, and therefore we consider all bread that's dairy or fleshic to be not kosher. Ravabar Ahivai said, look, if you're baking it in this oven, this oven was greased with fat, any bread baked in this oven will be fleshic, and therefore it's not kosher. An objection was raised in the one must not need dough with milk, and if he does need it with milk, the whole loaf is forbidden because it leads to sin. This is what we just said. You might need to eat this dairy bread with salami. If he does grease it, all the bread baked therein is forbidden until the oven is refired. Oh, wait a second. You can refire the oven. If you refire the oven, what happens? You kosher your oven by refiring it, implying that there is a way of fixing this oven. This implies the oven is refired, it is nevertheless permitted. 
This is a refutation of Ravabara. So this oven is forever trace. Go throw out this oven. Says the Gemara, no, there's a way to fix it. Wait a second. If there's a way to fix an oven like this, why can't you fix your common stick dishes, even according to Rav? Ravina said to Ravashi, now that Rav Arvahilai were retreated, why did Rav say pots must be broken on Passover? There's a way to fix them. You can just kosher them in the way that we suggested here, by refiring them in an oven. Well, there's one answer is, there we were talking about a metal oven. Metal you can kosher, as we'll see, whereas here it's an earthenware pot. Earthenware can't be kosher. Alternatively, Maybe both are earthenware ovens. In fact, most of their ovens in Babylonia were made of earthenware. They were made of clay. This oven is fired from the outside, while the other is fired from the outside. This oven is fired from the inside, while the other, the pot, is fired from the outside. When Rob said you can't possibly kosher your pots for Pesach, what was he talking about? Pots. Pots don't get koshered from the inside. You don't fill your pots with coals and then and kosher them that way. You would heat it from the outside, and that's not good enough, says Rob. An oven, however, is fired from the inside. That's a much more intense heat. That's really refiring your oven, and that, he says, would kosher it. And should you say here, too, let him burn the pot from within, maybe fill your pot with coals, he would spare it lest it burst. So here is a really interesting point about koshering for Pesach, one that's important in, in two registers. One, when you kosher, we understand, first of all, the, the hazards of koshering, right? When you kosher your pots, you have to be careful that they don't break. Uh, I, I remember this, uh, this apocryphal story uh, that they told me when I was uh, did a, a kashrut seminar with the OU of the overzealous mashkiach who took a blowtorch to the kitchen and ended up burning down the hotel on Erev Pesach. Uh, please be careful when you kasher. In fact, uh, I saw a post this year that said that, uh, we'll, maybe we'll try to get to this before the end, the usual, most people are actually not used to koshering their kitchen. Most people have a full set of dishes and utensils not for Pesach. And therefore, the fact that many people, or they go away to a hotel, and therefore this year, when people are unexpectedly at home, and they have to do kashering, they're not used to doing it. Um, and for people, especially um, elderly people who, uh, who may not be uh, the most fit in terms of handling large pots of boiling water, uh, we don't want people to uh, possibly hurt themselves before Pesach, and therefore there have been alternate ways non-standard ways of koshering various things that we don't normally use that are being suggested this Pesach. The other point here, which is a halachic point, is that's the practical side of this matter. But the, the halachic side, however, is we don't let you kosher things in certain ways if we realize that you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be able to go all the way. In other words, if in theory you could kosher your pot by using this other technique, we say still not good because you're not really going to do it. So we're going to get to this if we, uh, hopefully we'll get to koshering glass and we'll talk about, even though there's a possibility of koshering glass, um, we still don't advise doing it because people are not going to be 
to follow through on the way we capture glass, because glass, of course, is something that tends to be very fragile and tends to break more easily than other kinds of substances. The last point in this Gemara is maybe the most important point, because it establishes a general principle of kashering that becomes extremely in, uh, influential within later halakhic literature. Rafuna the son of Rabbi Yeshua said, Rafuna the son of Rabbi Yeshua said, I'm a Rafuna the son of Rabbi Yeshua, eight parur magilo brotrin ubakli rishar, kasavar kebo'o kach oto. A wooden pot ladle must be purified in boiling water, or it should be or in the cleaving shown. Thus he holds, just as it absorbs, so it exudes. When you have a wooden pot ladle, we don't actually tend to kosher wood, but you can kosher wood. A wooden pot ladle is used to stir a pot on fire. You can kosher it in boiling water on the flame, or depending on how it's used, in a cleavy shown in a pot that's off the flame. What's the logic? However it absorbed the chametz, that's how you get the chametz out of it. Kibolo kach polto. The way it absorbs, so you kosher it. In other words, there's a mirror image between the way you use something during the year and the way that you kosher it for Pesach. You are essentially, the koshering process in a sense, reversing the process by which the food was absorbed in the utensil in the first place. Now, anybody who's learned the halachot of koshering knows this principle becomes, as I said, it becomes very pervasive in later halachic literature. In fact, it only appears twice in the entire Gemara. So we don't, I don't want to get too carried away, or rather I want to examine the relationship between this as a general principle and the specific manifestations of koshering and understand that there's a degree of tension between the general principle and the specific manifestations. Similar to what we suggested, we talked about yesterday when we talked about the Mishnah of B'dikat Hametz, uh, a, a certain degree of tension between the general principle of places that you have to search for hametz and the specific, uh, the, the rules, the, the location-specific rules uh, that are formulated uh, in, in, in the Mishnah elsewhere. Okay, um, let's start with, let's start with, uh, and I'm going to go a little out of order. Let's start with this. Um, the hmm. let's start with the Mishnah of Arzara. Okay, the Mishnah of Arzara teaches us about kashering in a very different kind of context, and and it's important to do this Mishnah because uh, it makes us aware that kashering for Pesach is actually just a manifestation of kashering dishes in general. When you have kasher dishes, when they be used for tray foods. Chametz is one kind of tray food, albeit slightly different than other tray foods, as we will see. Um, and this mission establishes certain specific principles that apply to specific kinds of utensils. When purchases utensils from idolaters, objects that were not used should be immersed in a mikvah and then are then purified. That's mentioned in the Torah and still practiced nowadays. Uh, another interesting thing now that's come up this Pesach because people are not venturing out of their homes to mikvaot. If you buy something new, do you have to tovel it? There are ways of getting around this. How do we get around Shivat Kedim according to the suggestions been raised this year? 
you sell it to a non-Jew. Then, if you sell it to a non-Jew, then you don't have to tovel it, you use it, and then you'll tovel it later on. Mechirat chemin instead of mechirat chamins. Objects that were used for cold things, such as jug cups, jugs, and flasks, should be rinsed and immersed and are then purified. You have to wash them out. Make sure there's no residue left on the vessel. Objects that we use for hot things, since pots, kettles, and vessels for heating water should be scalded and immersed and are then purified. This is what we call hagalah, immersing the ikashring thing by immersing it in boiling water. And finally, objects that were used in fire, such as spits and grills, should be made white hot and immersed and are then purified. Okay? So what do we see here? We see three techniques for kashering, washing, hagalah, and um, and uh, what we call libun, getting something uh, uh, um, white hot uh, in fire. Those are the three techniques that are used for koshering. Maybe technically speaking, only the last two are really koshering because those are the ones by which we extract the, the food residue that is contained within the walls of our vessels. Washing a clea is just washing off the residue. That's not really very much uh, koshering, although if we get to the issue of glass, uh, I see already we might not uh, get there, we'll talk about when rinsing is relevant on Pesach as well. Um, notice what's going on here. The Mishnah seems to lay out specific principles in line with our general principle. Our general principle, again, was kibolo kach polto. As it absorbs, so it exudes. Well, that seems to be what's going on here. However, these vessels were used when they absorbed uh, non-Jewish, not non-Jewish, non-kosher food, that's how you extract the taste of non-kosher food from the walls of the vessel. Well, that's all fine and good, as long as we stick to general categories of vessels. As soon as we get more specific, we start to run the problems, okay? And here we go. Says the Rav Yah, from 13th century Germany, regarding a frying pan, okay, we're just going to read in English here to save a little time, it was cited to me in my father's name after his death that there were required incandescence. In other words, it requires libu, since it's similar to an oven which must be refired. Okay, think about this frying pan. Is a frying pan similar to the kinds of vessels that were talked about here, pots, kettles, and vessels for heating water? Those are all things that were used with liquids. Well, if you're using it with a lot of liquid, then what's the best way to kosher it? To kosher it with more liquid, to kosher it by boiling. That's the standard way that you kosher things that were used with liquid. Well, a frying pan is not exactly with a liquid. In fact, you could say that a frying pan is more similar to spits and grills, which are used with the food touching them directly over the fire. Now the Ravya is not so sure, but I didn't have the opportunity to discuss the issue with him. And it seems to me that by purging by boiling should be sufficient. The Rav Yah himself said, I'm not sure why my father says this, it seems to me that you should be able to use Hagalah in this case. And that's the mainstream practice. Why? First of all, because we see regarding the requirements of Taib Chalah, the Gemara equates frying and boiling. So one of the issues here is, when we talk about frying in oil versus boiling in water, are those two the same or different? And what the Rav Yah is doing is invoking a different area of halacha, where we also talk about the relationship between frying and boiling, either the same or different. We see about the kinds of breads that you have to take challah from, that frying and boiling are both the 
the same. They have the same value in terms of their ability to make something called bread for purposes of being required to take challah. Moreover, we have this same thing when we talk about Shabbat, or frying and boiling both the same category of bishul on Shabbat. Moreover, the rabbis are distinguishing different kinds of pots, even though there are some kinds of pots which are used for frying fats. Okay? Furthermore, we learned in Tosefta, pots, kettles, frying pans, and water pots can be purged through boiling water. So he says, look, in this Brita, we mention all kinds of pots, and it doesn't seem there's a difference in different kinds of pots. Pots are different, that are used for holding things, or different than grits, grill, spits, and grills. But also, if you look at the Tosefta that's parallel to this Brita, you see that it sticks one more word in. It doesn't just say pots, kettles. Pots, kettles, and water pots, which is what we have in our bright. It adds the word frying pan. So you see that at least the Tosefta thinks that frying pans are equivalent to these other things. So the Rav already acknowledges there are two ways of thinking about a frying pan, but he says that a frying pan is similar to any other kind of pot. The Taratabait, the Rashba, coming about uh, a, a few generations later, is not so sure. He says, um, a spit or a grill must be purged by fire, for it absorb, for as it absorbs, so it exudes. And these tools are considered to be used by fire. Okay, a spit or a grill used directly over the fire. There's no liquid medium between the food and the vessel or the utensil, and therefore you need to do libun, you need to kosher it by direct exposure to fire. And even though, so now already he starts with a little bit of a caveat, even though when one roasts, sorry for the typo here, when roasts on a grill, one smears it with a little fat or oil, this moisture doesn't prevent the fire from being the dominant factor, unlike kettles or water pots, which contain abundant liquid. So already he's kind of uh, hedging here. He says, oh, it's true. They're not in direct contact with the food. You usually smear a little oil on them. So why should that be different? than a pot which you use with liquid. He says, because that's a negligible amount of oil or fat, whereas the kettle or pot has a lot of oil, or a lot, sorry, a lot of water. So you see already where he's going with this. Therefore, it seems to me that if a metal frying pan on which roasts meat or fish in oil over the fire can be purged only by fire like a grill and not by boiling water like a pot, for there are times that one fries in very little oil, and often the oil runs out and one add more. And often the oil doesn't cover the entire surface, and it absorbs the prohibited substance in a spot that the oil isn't covering. He says, well, wait a minute. We have two cases that are known quantities. The case of a spit or a grill, which you smear with oil before you cook something on, that's a negligible amount of liquid. A pot that you boil something in, that's not a negligible amount of liquid. In between those, I have case A, which I know requires Libuan, requires direct fire exposure, and case B, which requires Hagalah, where Hagalah, boiling in water, is sufficient. Case C is the frying pan. Which of the cases is it most similar to? Right? This is the basic question of analogy. And he says, it seems to me the frying pan, since you often have very little fat or very little oil in the frying pan, and sometimes the oil runs out, and sometimes you're frying in a spot where there's no oil. Right? When you make schnitzel, you have to keep adding oil. Oh, sometimes the oil runs out. Uh, your schnitzel is now healthier, but, but now you, you've cooked your schnitzel directly on your pan. He says, therefore, you need to do libun to your pan. Well, that's a significant khumra. That's a significant stringency that you find by Varashba in the way that he says you have to kosher your frying pan.
Okay. Ah, uh, what does he do about the Tosefta? He said, oh, but I found in the Tosefta pots, water pots, frying pans and kettles can be purged through boiling water, implying that a frying pan is like a pot or a water pot. He, he cites the Tosefta that the Rashba cites and says the Tosefta sounds like frying pans are more like pots and not like grills. But even so, it seems to me that we did not rule like the Tosefta. For if we did, why would the Gemara omit the term frying pans? He says, look, it's true the Tosefta has frying pans in there, but the Brita does not. Is that a deliberate omission, says the Rashba? Yes, it is. Interesting. When there's a discrepancy between a Brita and a Tosefta, which are often parallel texts, what do you make of those discrepancies? He says the discrepancy is not happenstance, it's deliberate. Clearly, the author of the Brita did not agree with the author of the Tosefta and assumed that frying pans are not like grills. Um, not in this context. I don't think there are other mentions of frying pans in this, in the context of koshering. This is the main source of koshering information that we have. Um, there are other cases where frying is mentioned, and the Rav quoted one of them, namely when it comes to the definition of bread, what's considered to be bread for purposes of baking challah, and there we compare them. But the question is, are, are the, is the comparison between cooking techniques necessarily the same as the comparison between vessels? Because as the Rosh is pointing out, even if you assume the frying is like boiling, well, that's only true if you're frying in a lot of oil, if you're deep frying something. If you're frying in a very little bit of oil, if you're sauteing something or pan grilling something, that's more like using a grill. So the Rashba is stringent and requires a frying pan to, be, to, to do hag Allah. What is the Rashba clearly assuming? What's his operating principle here? It's not just a question of where frying pans go in this typology of Hagalah versus Dibun, of pots versus grills. It's also implicitly, I think, an issue of kibol o kachpolto. He says, look, if it absorbed the taste of the non-kosher food by direct contact between the food and the kli, then you have to do it, and, 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 and therefore there's no liquid there, therefore you can't use liquid to extract taste. How it absorbs, so it exudes, and the only way for it to exude this is through direct fire heat. Or, more to the point, there's a way of thinking about Libun and Hagalah. Libun is not necessarily the same as Hagalah. Libun can be not a way of extracting the taste of the food, but actually destroying the taste of the food that's absorbed in the walls of the clay. Again, the Gemara doesn't exactly describe it this way, but this is how some of the Rishonim describe and distinguish between the process of Libun and the process of Hagalah. Libun, getting the pot or the vessel to white hot is a way of destroying the taste that's, in, that's embedded within the walls of the vessel and not simply extracting it. So the Rashba says, look, if it got absorbed not through contact, not through a, a, a liquid medium, but through direct contact, then you can't extract it with a liquid medium. In other words, the Rashba is assuming that the general principle is the operative principle here. Kibbo'okach-poto dictates how I, how I kosher a kli whose status is unclear from the earlier sources. The Rosh, the Rashba's contemporary in Spain, takes issue with this and says as follows. His commentary is on the Ravya, but he's also implicitly uh, disagreeing with the Rashba. There are those who say, there are times that when it's frying and the oil dries out and the food ends up being baked in the pan without any oil and it's absorbed in the pan without any liquid medium. He uses the term baked. 
The dice and therefore it requires incandescence, it requires Liebling like spits and grills. So they disagree with this. Fearful we'd be concerned with this, then all metal pots, which sometimes run out of liquid and the food is burned in six to the five pot, should also require incandescence. Right? Says the says the rush, hey, have you never burned your chillant before? Chillant is something cooked in a liquid medium, but sometimes burns, and then you have no liquid medium between chillant and the pot. So in that case, I should also require it. But nobody's going to tell you that you require Liebling for your chillant pot just because once you happen to burn your chillant. Uh, hold on a second. Chag uh, Sameach. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Um, he says, but I disagree with this. For if we'd be concerned with this, then all metal pots run out of liquid and the food is burning six to the side. The pot should also require incandescence. We should also require Liebling. And we have no evidence of anyone being concerned for this. We've never seen that anybody requires you just because once you happen to bring your chillant to do Liebling to your chillant pot. Rather, the reason is that even when the food is burned, it sticks to the sides of the pot. There's some liquid in the food. It's just dry to the point. It, it's just the um, it's just dry at the point of contact with the pot. But this isn't considered used directly over the fire that would maintain that would mandate incandescence. That would maintain that mandate be one. So the rush says, look, it happens every so often, but there's still some liquid in the pot. Um, what I want to say about the rush, but is, um, sorry, what I want to say about the rush, and, and, and I think this is uh, not expressed quite so clearly here, but it's expressed more clearly elsewhere, um, is that the rush is saying, no, the case-specific rulings about different kinds of pots hold true regardless of any happenstance, any something that might have happened in a particular time that you, uh, that you happened, that your child happened to dry out and you had uh, some direct contact between the food and the vessel. He says, look, it's true that it happens sometimes, but what do you do? You, you go by the normal use of the food. And in this case, also, there's still some liquid there in the pot. Um, and this becomes, I think, let me see if I can find it here. I put it elsewhere in the source sheet, but, uh, but it's relevant to the point that we're making here. Aha, here it is. Okay. Um, so the Russians effectively saying, don't look at the instances that might have happened once upon a time where uh, the, the oil or the liquid in your pot dried out. That's not what dictates the, the category that the pot is in. And this gets expressed even more clearly in this other passage about the Razia, which is, uh, I think, the last point that we're going to get to, which is um, a question of whether certain kinds of utensils or vessels can be kosher in a clean reshone in a pot that's off the fire, or if you need to kosher them in a pot on the fire. Generally, the way that we do hag Allah is that we have a pot of boiling water that you put on your stove and you dip things in the pot. Okay, now, this can obviously get a little hazardous. You have to be careful when you do this. Uh, in my house, growing up, we always did Hagalah. Uh, I think because my father grew up in, uh, my grandparents were, uh, were caterers, and, and every Pesach they would run the uh, kitchen at a hotel. And here he grew up koshering uh, very large quantities of, uh, of, 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 of utensils before Pesach. Um, and therefore, we had a standard way of doing this, uh, where we had uh, a large pot that was special for koshering and, a, and, a, and a, a sieve that we used to immerse all of, uh, all of uh, my parents' uh, good sulfur at once. It was very simple to do, but it's not always so simple. Sometimes you want to kosher things um, differently. You want to kosher them, say, in a clearishon, or you want to kosher them by pouring boiling water over them from the pot. So he says, 
Plates must be purged by boiling, regardless of whether they're metal or wood. Because sometimes one inverts them over meat or fish in a pot. And sometimes one uses them to take soup from the boiling pot, so the plates become a cleaver shown. And we should also be concerned regarding silver cups, for sometimes one heats wine and peppers and spices in the near the fire, and therefore one must purge them by boiling. So he says, anything that you might once upon a time have used in a pot over the fire or in a cleaver shown requires hagalah. It requires being done in a pot over the fire. And so too, even if it's something that you normally use in a pot over the fire, a teaspoon, you don't normally use a teaspoon to stir a pot. But if you did once upon a time, now it becomes not a teaspoon, but a soup spoon. Sorry, not a soup spoon. It becomes effectively a soup ladle. And now you have to kosher it the way that you would kosher anything that you stuck in a pot. Again, kibbo'o, kach polto. As it absorbs, so it exudes. And if it absorbed on the fire, then you have to kosher it again in a pot on the fire. The Rashba, again, disagrees. And here you see, uh, actually, the Rashba tends to go in the opposite direction regarding this particular ramification. The Rashba now says, you ask regarding metal cups or trays when uses all year round in which is used on Pesach, it's rinsing them sufficient. As we learned, objects that used for cold things, such as cups, jugs, and flasks, to be rinsed and immersed in or thereby purified. Or should we be concerned that sometimes during the winter we place these utensils by the fire in order to heat wine? Again, referring back to the point that the Rabbiyah made. And we put chametz in them as well, and therefore they should require purging by boiling. His answer is, according to the letter law, it seems to be require only rinsing, as we learned from the Brita. For even though sometimes, as you said, um, Sometimes we do, as you said. Um, first of all, he raises a different point here that the kli is not ben uh, yomo. You haven't actually used the kli like this in the past 24 hours. And therefore, the sages followed the primary use of the utensil in determining how it should be purged. So here he lays down a principle that in some ways seems to be at odds with the previous thing that he said. About frying pans, he said, well, sometimes it happens you run out of oil, and therefore you have to do uh, purging. But here he says, we have certain kinds of vessels that are mentioned explicitly in the Brita as being vessels that you can conquer simply by rinsing them. You don't need to do Hagalah. You're going to tell me, oh, once upon a time, I dipped it in a pot on the fire. Or once upon a time, I took my silver wine goblet and I put it near the fire to heat the wine. And now it should be considered as if I boiled the wine in that cup. Now, go by what it says in the Brita as terms of the categories that certain vessels are in. For this, you don't, for if you don't accept this reasoning, he says, how do you explain the fact that they've ruled the one who purchases the utensils from a non-Jew needs only to rinse cups and flasks? Has their usage changed from the time of the Talmud to our time? These things stay the same. In other words, he says, when you buy uh, your non-Jewish neighbor's uh, silver goblets at his yard sale, how do you know what he did with his wine goblets? Maybe he also put them near the fire to eat his wine. When you buy his teaspoons, how do you know that he didn't use them by stirring to stir something over the fire? Rather, he says, determining the proper method for purging utensils to follow the primary usage. And therefore, he says, you don't have to be machmir based on what might have happened once upon a time. However, for Pesach, we have the custom to purge everything in boiling water because of the stringency of prohibition of chametz. So he says, in general, that's true. On Pesach, we're extra stringent, and which is why uh, for example, uh, we, in my, again, in my parents' house, we always used to kosher our Kiddush cups for Pesach, which you can do. 
He says there you need to do Hagalah, you need to put it in boiling water because for Pesach we're extra. It does seem there's tension between these two points of the Rashba. In fact, the way that I've described it, the Rashba seems to flip his position. When he talked about frying pans, he said, well, it might have happened once that you um, the oil ran out and it was direct contact between the food and the cleat. In other words, he took a general principle approach where he said, Kippel Okach Polto. In this case, the Rashba is specifically not following Kippel Okach Polto, just because it happened once upon a time that you used a spoon or a wine gobble in a particular way doesn't determine the general usage. Again, there are ways to resolve the apparent contradiction within the Rashba's position. The simplest one being, the utensils he's talking about here are actually mentioned explicitly in the Brighton. and therefore he says, just do what it says in the Brighton. don't get any new rules. Whereas frying pans were not actually mentioned in the Brighton, and therefore the Rashba felt more comfortable where it may be more necessary to come up with a new rule for determining what the status of frying pans is. All I wanted to show you here is, again, a certain degree of tension between as a general principle, and the specific manifestations of how you culture, which are Hag'alah for certain types of utensils and vessels, and Libun for other ones. Um, there's always a certain degree of tension in terms of how we culture things. Sometimes we think about the general principle and we say, okay, we're developing a kind of quasi-scientific way of dealing with the leftover food residue in our utensils as it was absorbed, so it exudes. I treat that as kind of a quasi-scientific principle that dictates how I'm gonna do kashering, as opposed to the case-specific rulings, which are more formalistic, that are more rigid and categorical, and that's a different way of thinking about kashering. There's no one way, no one right way to think about it. The two ways of thinking about it in terms of a general quasi-scientific principle and as case-specific rulings, both come into play in various kinds of situations. Uh, I wanted to mention before we finish um, that two points. One, one of the things they're recommending that people do this year is instead of doing Hagalah, which as I said, can sometimes be a little hazardous, taking, suggesting that people kosher their metal utensils the way they kosher their ovens. One way that we kosher their, our, the way that we kosher our ovens uh, if you have a self-cleaning oven, great, you're good to go, because self-cleaning actually constitutes Libun in the classic sense of, of, of getting the metal sides of your oven hot enough to really destroy any chametz, to really burn any chametz that might, be, uh, might have adhered or become absorbed in the walls of your oven. If you don't have a self-cleaning oven, what do you do? So there's a third category here that we call Libun Kal, that we're not going to have time to explore in detail. It's kind of halfway between Hagalah and Libun Chamor, or Libun Gamor, which is the getting something hot enough to really destroy all of the chametz. And that is getting it hot enough that if you put a piece of paper or a piece of straw on it, it would burn that piece of paper or straw. For various reasons we're not going to talk about, that's a third technique that gets developed. Well, that's what we do with our ovens. We say our ovens, get them to the hottest temperature they could possibly have gotten to, and that's hot enough. In some ways, what are we relying on there? Kibol o kach polto. As it absorbed, so it exuded. You couldn't have possibly gotten your oven to any higher than 550 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that's how hot you get it to now. And if you're kashering your oven that way, what do you do? Take a tray, or take a rack, 
put all of your soup ladles and other metal utensils and all of your your um, all of your tongues and whatever else you need to pass for Pesach on the rack, heat your oven up, let it get to that temperature, leave it for 20 minutes, which is the standard time we require, we, we suggest that people did, and now they're all kosher because it's no worse than putting it in a pot of boiling water. That's how people, certain the postgame are recommending that people kosher their, uh, their utensils this year. Again, relying on this notion of kibbolo kach polto, a kind of quasi-scientific notion of the way that the kosher vessels which diverges from the case-specific recommendations that are made in the Spreita, namely to construct things that are used in liquids over liquids. Okay. Um, the other point that I very briefly wanted to touch on, when I talk about Kibolo-Kach-Polto as a quasi-scientific principle, there's a whole perspective on kashrut in general and kashruting vessels specifically to say, well, to what extent is this really a, a scientific system? To what expect do we expect? To what extent do we expect our, the rules of kashrut, uh, and specifically when we think about uh, particles and particles of non-kosher food and particles of chametz, to correlate with the way that we think about scientific uh, particles of things? Um, and the answer is complicated because just as we talked about with mechirat chametz, that there's never a perfect correlation between a legal way of thinking about something and the kind of commonsensical every way day, everyday way of think, thinking about something. By kashering and kashering also, there are certain formalistic aspects of kashering and of kashering that don't always correlate with the scientific principles that we use to think about the world. And therefore, if you were to ask me, are there really food particles in my cavern? I'm not sure what my answer would be. Sometimes yes, when you when I um, I have a set of very good cast iron pans that I've been working on uh, developing a, 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 a nonstick surface for years. They're really excellent. Nonstick surfaces develop on those kinds of pans because cast iron is a porous material. It actually absorbs food and therefore food particles and therefore you can sometimes actually taste the food that's been cooked in your cast iron pans. Is that true for other kinds of vessels? Not necessarily. There's been a lot of research done on this in the past couple of years, past couple of decades, as to what extent the Gemara's assumption that food, that, that vessels absorb food is really scientifically true. Regardless of whether it's scientifically true, it is certainly true on a formalistic level, which is why we have to capture things in general. And therefore, when we think about a, a, a quasi-scientific principle like Kibbol-O-Kach-Polto, you have to ask the same kind of question, or you can ask the same kind of question. Is there really a process of exuding the particles from the vessels? I'm not sure that's necessarily a helpful way to think about it. I'm not sure it's wrong, but I'm also fairly sure that it's not completely right. Meaning, if you were to do a scientific test, are there still coming particles in your uh, in your vessels after you've castrated them, I'm not sure what the answer would be. I'm not even sure how you would detect a chamate particle. You would have radioactive chamates, however you would create that. Uh, I'm not sure what the answer would be, but, but it's helpful to realize that the way that we think about castrating, even though we talk about certain kind of quasi-scientific principles, is never going to be really scientific. There's always going to be a certain degree of discrepancy between the system of science, the one way of thinking about the world, and the halachic way of thinking about the world, the halachic formal categories that we've talked about are never going to correlate perfectly with uh, the, the scientific principles that we use to describe the world.
Okay, uh, we'll have to leave it here. Um, I'm happy to take questions uh, now or by, yes. uh, by email. Yeah. Rev. Daniel, yeah, it's Nisa, but first maybe somebody else has a question. Okay, so uh, two comments and a question, if I may. Al-Ahron uh, Rishon, since we, we just spoke of this. Nisan, if I can ask, yeah, I, yeah. there's um, some feedback coming up. Yeah, you're, you're, I think you're linked in twice. I am. I'm going to... I'm going to sign off from the Zoom. Okay. Good. Can you hear me now? Much better. Thank yeah. you. Great. Thanks so much. So I don't see anybody. Um, uh, many years ago, he's, he has since passed away. He died young. Uh, Dr. Alan Shulman was the first um, Shomer Shabbos chairman of a scientific council of the American Dental Association. And uh, he was chairman of the Council on Dental Materials. Um, I met him after I graduated Columbia. He was chairman of the Department of Dental Materials at, um, at New York University's dental school. And uh, we had a, uh, we, I have in a, a, buried somewhere, I have a-, a I see where you're uh, going with this, yeah. Okay, a, you see where this is going right as far as, so he did, you know, he, there are, as you said, with the cast iron, there is definitely, and it's not in the mouth, so you don't have to, you know, uh, if, if a temperature that would, uh, that would, um, would cause, allow right, for, for palatos from your silver fillings or your crowns, et cetera, exactly. will kill you first. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. So that just, just to mention that. Um, That's true. His, right. You have to his, wonder, his, wait, are your fillings absorbing, absorbing Khamet's taste that you wouldn't have to get rid of, right? People talk about costing your dentures, right? But by definition, whatever you put in your mouth can't be hot enough that it's going to uh, cause, cause absorption. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, the comment I had is actually on the first part of the share um, of today. Um, okay. When you spoke of Kenyonim, and as far as it was fascinating, I learned so much from you today, as always. Um, the um, the idea of of a Kenyan, of you know, of picking up whether it's a Kenyan, um, you know, suitor, you know, where where it's just some some type of uh, representation, you pick up, uh, you know, Halipin, and uh, all these things, as I understand, is a reification of the Gemirat. Dot that a Kenyan yeah. is really yeah, all yeah. about. I think that's true. So that I think that's true. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's not magic. It's not a. It's just a a, a no. physical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 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 a way of making it real. And again, the the. I mean, what are we doing when we when we give a pen? What, what's a Kenyan chalipin? A Kenyan by trade, right? Mm -hmm. Effectively, I'm trading something, one thing for another thing, right? So in, in, in a barter system, in a very simple barter economy, uh, there's an intuitive sense that if I give you one thing, you give me another thing, we've traded not only possession, but ownership. Um, when that gets abstracted to the point where, okay, if I give you my pen, or even if you give me your pen as a gift and I give it back to you, right? We can trade that for anything, right? I can trade me you, a pen for my warehouse full of cummings. That's the point at which it's true that there's a real intuitive sense that trading things is a way of, of establishing ownership or, or changing ownership. 
but but at some point that becomes so abstracted that you have to that, that it works only if you're deeply committed to and absorbed within uh, the, the 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 system of law as as a way of thinking about the world. As soon as you step out of that, you say, "What do you mean? You just traded the pen for your warehouse full of coming? Does that work? Would that make sense to somebody else who's not as as no, not at all. It's just a bad. Right. It's exactly. just a way of reifying the gemira da. The fact that we are of right. two minds. Oh, 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 you are you're willing. Saying. You're saying that that's what I'm, that's doing my an point. action, doing an action. It's a reification. Is mean. It's, it's interesting. Interesting. In other words, it doesn't that, represent what it was. This is how all kenyanim work. I, I was taught. Interesting. But I wasn't taught this in high yeah. school. This was many years later. I didn't. No, no, no. <laughs> or but even in base Madras. I think other Kenyanim. I think other Kenyanim are more real. Again, I don't want to draw this point out because because mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to speak too long about this. I think you know when right. you when you when you make a Kenyan on uh, a new car, why do you make a Kenyan car? You drive it out of the lot. Well, it's the, the way we intuitively think about these things as well. Uh, mm -hmm. What do I mean? What do I do when I drive a car out of the lot? I establish usage of it. I establish control over it. So, right, so exactly. some Kenyanians still have much more of an intuitive sense. They're not simply symbolic. Right. Hagbar, exactly. Practical meaning. Mm -hmm. What right. you're saying about the, the Kenyan of a, of a pen is that it has meaning, it, but its meaning is symbolic rather than practical. Right. In, in, I, in, I, and I, in I, any Kenyan, if I drive off your, your, your car lot with the car, just the fact that I'm being, you know, Moshe, this, or being, you know, this car, it doesn't make it mine. We have to have a meeting of the minds, a gemir at a that's meeting true. of the minds that's true. that I have acquired it from you. That's true. But what I'm saying is it's not only symbolic, it's also practical. When I drive a car off the yes. lot, I'm establishing control of the car, I'm establishing usage of the car. When I trade you my when you when I trade you your pen for my warehouse full of comets, there's less of an intuitive sense that that's that works in the real world. Somebody looking on from the outside would say, "Well, that's a right. joke." Right. That's and that's why like, well, you, you explain about formalism for it, for it to be real. That, that's yes. brilliant. The way legal formalism as opposed to legal fiction. My question is about from yesterday, she or I. I didn't. I was muted. I didn't have a chance to ask you if I may. Just on the I got it apart. Uh, now Hashem Nishmat Adam Chofes Kol Chadrei Batim. I'm not sure. I have to look back. I have to look back at the at the Pesukim Mishlein Mefarshim. Who who is the who, who is it talking about that that the the soul of man is the is the lamp of God. I'm I'm not sure exactly how to. My recollection is that you gave it also a, 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 a oh, beautiful, a when you switch it, the subject it, and the predicate, is it right. Nishmat right. Adam so that is... It, when it switches it, it's essentially saying that, um, that, that, that um, there's something about the... Um, that, that the lamp somehow represents the soul. That's that's the mm -hmm. association that I wanted to make. Um, that there's an association between lamp and soul, not specifically about person and God. Okay, that that part of it is is I think less important. But but the the, okay. the, the, the association between lamp and soul um, is is I think what the Gemara is getting at, and what the later the Farshim are picking up on when they when they develop a kind of a spiritual approach to uh, to the Bikkurahamets. Thank you. Okay. Is there anyone um, in particular thank that? Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I realize it's late by you. Okay. What time is it by you? Uh, about 9.30. 9.30, yeah. Right. yeah. Very well. Okay. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, have a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, uh, a very um, 
happy, kosher, and healthy Pesach. Uh, and may you, may we all uh, meet the particular challenges of this Pesach um, without uh, feeling like too much was taken away from our Simchat Thank you very much.